Well, hi everybody, welcome to Stress Free Lounge. <clears throat> I'm your host, Bill Whittle. Good to see everyone here. Um, sorry we had to miss you last week. Uh, I've been pounding out these uh, scripts on um, the Soviet Union. Sound, the sound is not on. Okay, well. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, just knocking these things out, and um, and it's hard, you know. It's it's uh, it's a tough um, it's a tough subject. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been um, it's been pretty uh, challenging, but we're getting there, and um, I guess that's that. I suppose. Um, you might tell I, I don't have a whole lot of voice uh, left, so I'm just going to jump right into the questions here. We'll get as many as we can get done. Um, and then I will see if I can give this uh, a rest here. Come on. Oh, Joy, come on. Do it. I'll tell you, the eyes are going fast, too, here. Um, okay, so questions for... Is it 10, 6, 10... That's weird. Oh, I see, okay. Uh, I'm trying to catch up here. It looks like uh, 10.6 was the, the last. Is there, I don't see anything for uh, 10.13 unless it's... Nope. Uh, I got 10.18 Stratopop questions, so I guess we'll do the 10.6 questions. Um, boy, I am having a hard time seeing these guys here. Hang on a second. I think that's better. Um, <clears throat> oh, tomorrow's the anniversary of the Battle of Hastings. I was rooting for the Normans on that one. I don't know why. Uh, anyway, uh, probably because that's uh, what I was told to root for when I was in uh, British schools. So here we go. Um, this is the, uh, the the latest ones I could find anyway. Uh, and I'm just going to take them in order here. <clears throat> uh, from Ian Nolan. Uh, hey, Bill, I can't decide if this is a pop culture or a politics question. It straddles the line. Uh, let's, let's start. Band of Brothers, Hacksaw Ridge, Saving Private Ryan, the World War II movie genre has given us enough of a cultural marker that the societal consensus pretty much has the American spirit of that era being pure noble freedom fighters and the Nazis are rightly condemned. I've long realized that there's a missing 
movie genre to really condemn communism. That's, I'm your guy. Perhaps it would be to the U.S. Uh, World War II genre, like how the American gangster film is an inversion of the hero's journey, or perhaps it should steer clear of the wars altogether. What do you think the narrative format for such a genre should be, and what are the most ripe stories for this genre? Um, I have spent an incredibly uh, huge amount of time I mean, I've spent 10 hours, at least 10 hours, on one subject alone, and that was how many people were murdered in the Lubyanka. I saw the movie The Czechist. I wrote a description based on what I'd seen because it was consistent with other things that I'd seen. And, um, and, I, and I wrote it as happening in the basement of the Lubyanka. And then I just started looking for uh, photos of that and... I just couldn't find it. I couldn't find anything. Um, I did find uh, the the first uh, chapter begins uh, in Google Earth, and uh, and we get to we get to actually fly down and 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 see these sites that are there today, right now in in Moscow. That very first segment is called a, a modern city, and um, in the course of my research. I discovered that um, uh, that while there was an awful lot of shooting on the Lubyanka, in the actual Lubyanka, down the street about a half a mile on the left is a, a small courtyard, which was a, a Cheka garage thing. And, um, and the nice thing about this is that we just start um, at the Lubyanka. Actually, we start at Lenin's tomb, go to the Lubyanka, and then we can just pop, pop, pop. We'll edit it because it's a little slow in real time. Zip, 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 zip. We'll just we just go down two blocks north of the Lubyanka, um, and there's a completely nondescript-looking building with a completely nondescript narrow gate, and inside that gate, scores of these black Marias used to go. Oh, hey, thank you. Uh, I can never see this light green on this way. Great to see you too, Brian Woodbridge. Anyway, it's just, it's, I, I knew I had the right building because there was a Russian flag uh, on the outside, but it's still owned by the FSB. A little courtyard, and inside that little courtyard, probably 15,000 people were shot. And you'd walk right past it. And then, if you come out of the Lubyanka and go the other way, uh, just across the square, a third of a mile away is uh, a building. It's currently got a tarp over the front. Uh, it's got a print on the tarp, but it's being renovated. Uh, it's a building that was known as the Shooting House. And they called it the Shooting House because uh, 34,361 people had their death sentences uh, read to them in that building, and virtually all of them were shot in the basement of that building, which is just across the street from the Lubyanka. And when you look at it on Google Earth, you see all these beautiful like Christmas lights that are that are hanging, and benches and people sipping Starbucks and stuff, and uh, and you have to ask yourself how many of these people uh, know what happened in the building that they're leaning against. Thirty-six thousand people, um, and then I go looking for the bodies, which takes us to Butovo, eventually, among other places. Uh, 
the Batovo uh, firing range in Komenarka and um, and one of the cemeteries in town. Uh, what I realized was that starting in 1936 at Putovo, which is a just an open patch um, south, about 13, 14 miles south of Red Square, just kind of thing you just drive past every given day and not, not know anything about it. Um, you, inside of Putovo on the first day, they, mur they murdered 91 people and they dug a ditch and they lined them up, checked their photographs, shot them in the back head, kicked them in. And then they kept doing that for a number of years. The, the single biggest day, there was 561 people, which is not a big number compared to Auschwitz or uh, Treblinka, where a big day there might be 10, 12,000. But this thing started in 1936. Auschwitz became operational in 1940. So essentially, this was the first um, death camp, extermination camp. This was the first place that I'm aware of in human history where people were brought to be executed, murdered, and buried, and not just um, and not just for uh, religious reasons. Not you know a handful of people being you know um, you know strangled and chucked in the bog someplace. This was the first real mechanized um, uh, murder pit. Five hundred people in a night. You know it's it's not that's not that's not too bad when you get right down to it. Uh, and I just, again and again and again, everybody's heard of Auschwitz. Everybody's heard of, you know, Treblinka and Dachau. And no one's heard of Lubyanka. No one's heard of Butovo, Laforto prison. So I was, I was watching um, the Czechist again because... Everything in the Czechist indicates that it was the Lubyanka that they're working in. Uh, the Czechist is, for those of you who have not been uh, keeping up on this subject, which I've mentioned several times on the um, Stratosphere Lounge, I think it's probably the most important movie uh, in terms of if I could make if I could make mandatory viewing of one film in American classrooms, it would be the Czechist. It's available for YouTube in its entirety with with poor English subtitles, but you'll get the drift. There's not a whole lot of nuance there that you're likely to miss. Um, but I, I looked at it again because I wanted to make sure that, that this was the Lubyanka and its yellow building and the big courtyard, so it's the, it's the Lubyanka. And um, so to answer your question, um, I would I would remake that movie. And I would make a number of movies. I'd I'd, I'd remake the Czechist. Uh, I would I would do at least one movie about Kolomo, um, Gulag uh, in uh, northeastern Russia, where um, these starving intellectual prisoners were sent out to work in the in the gold mines at fifty degrees below zero. And uh, at 40 degrees below zero, they said that if you spit, uh, it the spit will freeze in the air and you, it'll hit the ground and the metallic sound like dropping a penny or something. Um, the Czechist is not for the faint-hearted, uh, and it's not a family movie either. It's full frontal nudity, and there's full frontal nudity, male and female, because they're taking bodies and just stringing them up on ropes and putting them in a truck and just the, the machinery of it goes on. Um, 
this is, uh, I mean, as I say in this first episode, it's like I, I'm not, in order to make this happen, I, I can't use historical skills. I have to use my whatever skills I have as an astronomer. How do you make people, um, how do you make people grasp large numbers, you know? A light year is 5.88 trillion miles. What does that mean? Nobody knows what that means. I don't know what that means. Uh, when you try and get it into a frame of reference, it, it does somehow seem just a tiny, tiny little bit more uh, conceivable. 2,500 miles between LA, uh, LAX and JFK. So uh, the distance that light travels in one year is equivalent to 2,355,000,000 trips across the United States. Does that help? Well, maybe a little. Um, so this is the problem, and so the, the only way to solve that problem, I mean, 100,000 people killed in Moscow alone, executed over the course of the years, that's, you know, Burbank. That's uh, Green Bay. Uh, what? How do you get your head around those things? And there is no way to get your head around them. So, um, so the the uh, strategy that I've taken on these uh, series is to constantly go to photographs of individuals, constantly, um, because that is something that people can deal with, and it does give me a chance to tell an abbreviated form about the um, about the execution of the Romanovs and and. Uh, they're kind of the, the first of the innocents, you know, that were uh, murdered. And, um, and you know, and, and other people, uh, much more famous writers, have, um, have uh, said this about the Soviets. There's, there's something... Um, there's something comical about them. The, 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 there's something that is just so incompetent about the entire system, how drunken they were. They, they, they've got 11 bodies and a dog in the back of their truck that they've just murdered, and they're driving out to dispose of these bodies, and one of the murderers who was in charge of this was, um, was so drunk he brought one shovel, you know. They decided to put all these bodies into a mine shaft, and they dump these naked bodies into this dark hole. And after a short time, it becomes clear that this bottomless mine shaft isn't bottomless. It's only nine feet deep. So you got to post a guard and come back the next day and throw a rope around them and pull them out and take them to a deeper mine shaft. But then your truck breaks down and gets stuck in the mud. And now the sun's coming up and everybody's drunk and hungover. And nobody wants to follow orders. So we just dig a big wide two foot deep ditch just flat lay the bodies down put some railroad ties over it run over it with the truck and get the hell out of there the um uh one of these writers i want to say it was um martin amos i think said something that really uh is profoundly true i think about about the soviets versus the nazis um, he said that the, the Nazis didn't do their worst. And what he meant by that was they 
the, the whole regime lasted 11 years and the you know the total actual mass murder years maybe four or five years uh, the Soviets lasted for 78 years. Uh, he said Stalin was a psychopath with patience. Uh, and there's something to be said about that, that Stalin did his worst. He, he, that society did its worst. It killed 20 million people. Uh, and just again and again and again and again and again and again and again, I just keep coming back to these numbers, and I just... This is the the... the the tone I'm trying to take with this, you know, this is Moscow today. I mean, this is, I got the pins on Google map and, and, and we'll, we'll go have a look at them. And if you uh, want to look up Petovo, um, south of Moscow, about 14, 15 miles south of Red Square, it's just a square patch of forest, but there's 60,000 people buried there. And, um, and American cities aren't like that. You know, American cities don't have 60,000 nameless bodies buried in parks and fields. So um, I, would, I would do that. And, uh, and I would like to take the people that still defend this system. And I don't really know what would be appropriate. I kind of think I'd, I know for a fact it'd be God go much easier on the students than I would on the teachers. But um, even in the Czechos, there's people defending this, you know, saying, um, oh, this is, you know, propaganda or not even denying it. Just, yeah, so we killed a lot of guilt, a lot of innocent people. We killed a lot of guilty people, too. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know. It's um, it's a genre, uh, Ian, that um, that should have been uh, dealt with the minute we found out about these things, and that's another thing, by the way, uh, the number of Westerners and intellectuals who covered for this regime, not only covered for them, but covered for them um, fully aware of what was going on. You know, that's a that's a special. Um, that's a special kind of thing. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, moving on. Uh, Chris Taylor. Uh, Bill, what would you recommend as either a short vacation spot or relaxation activity for someone who was overstressed and needed to play hooky for a day or two and come back refreshed with his motivation and sense of perspective restored, ideally somewhere uh, within a day trip of L.A.? Uh, there ain't no such place. Um is that true, Quibo? Bill Burr said that capitalism's killed more people than socialism. Did he really say that? Because if he did, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna cry. You heard it from him, or you heard that he said it? Did you actually see? Did you actually see him say it? One of the things that um, that Lenin tried very hard to do was to constantly put roadblocks in the way of the American relief mission. When the Soviets were starving, they, they had two famines in the Soviet Union, one in 1921-22 and then the, the, the super big one in the 30s. 
And during the, the first one, um, Lenin was doing his very best to um, make sure that the American relief mission was blocked at every opportunity, but they couldn't block it. Uh, an American, so, so everybody knew that there was this famine in the Soviet Union, and uh, the United States sent over not only bags of food, but an army, sent over a small army of people. Um, and uh, how long is that, Marusha? Can you tell me? Um, anyway, uh, the, um, the American effort saved 10 million Russian lives. The, the capitalists went over to the socialist utopia and saved 10 million lives. Uh, I, I don't care anymore. I, you know, all right, Bill, I'm done with you, Bill. That's a shame because you were actually one of the few people left that I actually thought was, you know, somewhat immune to this kind of thing. I, I really did think you were a guy who thought for yourself, but uh, I'm not going to watch it. I, said, I don't need to have a, yet another uh, source of uh, entertainment or relief destroyed. I just take your word for it. I know it's true. So, okay, F you, Bill Burr. You want to make a you want to make a statement like that? That's that you go right ahead. Um, so uh, killed more people than socialism did it. Well, Bill, we, Bill, we could take a fucking shovel and we could go to to downtown New York City and start digging in Central Park and see which one of us comes up with the most bones first. You know, I got a couple fields you could start digging in. Um, God almighty, I just, okay, that's, that's just, all right, you know, All right, Martin Archer, um, I don't have a place. There is no day trip uh, anywhere near uh, me or, and, and, uh, and I, I just don't know. Um, so Martin Archer, uh, all this talk of Democrat voting blocks like blacks and Latinos switching to Republican for the upcoming elections is just wishful thinking. The Dems will cheat again all over. Why do you think California has been solid Dems since the last real Republican governorship? Uh, they've stolen votes there for decades because of the big electoral vote they get. It's not rocket science. We are governed by commies and have been for years, and commies cheat votes because they have to. Okay. Well, all right then. Uh, Marusha Dark, topic, China. Given China's preoccupation with the idea of saving face, what if we could send a message to the— because that last wasn't even a question. It was just a statement. So— Statement has been duly read, Martin. Um, given China's preoccupation with the idea of saving face, what if we could send a message to the Chinese people? In fact, why waste time? Why not just just shoot ourselves? You know, since since uh, all of this uh, uh, can't win, that everybody's cheating. It's all wishful thinking. Why don't you just all just jump off a freaking bridge? 
Given China's preoccupation with the idea of saving face, what if we could send a message to the Chinese people appealing to their sense of patriotism and identity, acknowledging their rich history and culture while saying that the CCP has done nothing but bring shame and dishonor to that ancestral legacy, literally using those two words, shame and dishonor, would that resonate with them? Do you think, would they believe it? Yes, I think so. The problem then becomes how do you get such a message past the Great Firewall of China, and I have an idea for that too. I know you're a fan of drones, so supposing we launch an army of drones over Chinese airspace that were programmed to emit vapor trails, writing messages in the sky, or perhaps we even have the technology to make crude holograms like the kind used in Mysterio and Spider-Man Far From Home. It wouldn't have to be complicated, just write the message out in Mandarin talking about the crimes uh, of the CCP, saying that the world will be welcome the Chinese people back with open arms if they simply rid themselves of this communist blight. I doubt if there's anything the CCC could do to stop it. They might well try to gaslight the population or even retaliate against it, but by that point we'd have broken through the average person and the message will have been received, which seems like the most important element of dismantling any totalitarian state to try to find a way of the planet to plant the seeds of liberty. Obviously, given the gravity of such an act, this is not something to consider likely. And for our YouTube overlords, I'm only posing it hypothetically. Um, you've got a, two problems with this idea. Uh, one of them is there's a billion people there, and they're not all sitting there in a stadium waiting for the drone show. And the other problem is, is that drones do not have international range. Uh, if you're going to do something with a drone, you generally have to be within line or sight or close enough to it. And so the only people that can get this message to the Chinese people are other Chinese people or an American who arrives in Beijing with, you know, 750 million drones in his, in his luggage. Um, the idea is something that is going to have to come from uh, China any, if we were to, if it doesn't matter what, look, I'm watching the um, the Russian people getting all nationalistic behind Putin because he's saying it's defense of the motherland and the Rodina, and significant numbers of Russians are are buying into that. Once you start to, um, Marusha says, deploy them from a high altitude plane over a city, well, that's not something I don't think the Chinese would mind. Too much if we did really i think maybe we'll just charter a couple of um united 747s and we'll just fly them over beijing drop a few thousand drones out of the air and and better to ask per, you know forgiveness and permission so if it turns out that they're, they're not totally cool on the idea of us dropping drones over their city from airplanes uh with messages uh talking about deposing the ccp then i suppose that they, they would write us a a sternly worded letter um, the, the thing that seems pretty clear to me is that you cannot, um, you cannot inject a desire for freedom into people, even if you could, uh, you can't, you can't free the Chinese people or the Chinese people's minds by remote control. In fact, um, and uh, 
it's like this is why I have such a problem with open borders. I mean, from a philosophical point of view, if um, if it were impossible for people to create their own free societies, like this thing was, like 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 the U.S. was put here on on the earth in a, in a you know as a flying saucer of freedom, and and here's where it landed, and it's the only one available, and 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 that uh, and that means that you either get on that lifeboat or you don't, then. I would have a much more difficult moral quandary, but the fact of the matter is, is that we don't keep the Constitution uh, under uh, the wording of the Constitution is not a state secret. Let's put it that way, um, and neither are any of the other aspects of the government. There, you can go right now and and find the U.S. Constitution, read it, and implement it yourself if you want to. Um, and if you're not inclined to do that on your own, then I'm not entirely sure that the system will work. You see, this system, the thing that people don't really ever seem to get about the Constitution, it, 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 people think that on some level that the Constitution makes the country, but the truth of the matter it makes the people is probably better, that, that we are the kind of people we are because of the Constitution. Well, there's true but the Constitution is the way it is because of the kind of people that wrote it. And that's the thing that nobody seems to be able to get a firm grasp on. Uh, you cannot graft these ideas onto people uh, and expect that it'll take, because it won't take. This is a lesson that we learned uh, in the uh, first part of uh, this century that that the, the longing for freedom is universal, generally speaking, but the willingness to do the hard work necessary for it is not. And, um, and that was a, a heartbreaking thing to discover, but nevertheless, there it is. You, you get what you pay for and you pay for what you get. Um, And if something is handed to people, then it, it then it essentially has little or no value. So uh, I remember when they had the first election in Iraq and those people were risking being killed by insurgents and al-Qaeda and had their purple fingers held those up. I said, all right, that's, that's it. We did it. That's what we wanted to see, what we wanted to believe. And um, no. Now, the... The real question there is, did that uh, fail in Iraq and Afghanistan because uh, it was bound to, or did it fail because we weren't completely committed to it? And what I mean by that in two examples is, number one, in Iraq, when they wrote the Iraqi constitution, they wrote Sharia law into the constitution. And we said, well, it's your constitution. Okay. That's not what that's not what um, uh, MacArthur did. MacArthur essentially wrote the Japanese Constitution by hand, and MacArthur, having seen the, the the cost of defeating Japan, wasn't about to write a constitution for Japan that gave the military unlimited power to lop off people's heads and 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 have you know ultimate autocracy you know vested in the emperor. He 
kept he kept the emperor because he thought it was socially cohesive glue, and he didn't want to deal with what would have happened if he'd gotten rid of him. But he made him an absolute figurehead, and he just wrote the constitution that turned Japan into a modern, free Western power with individual rights and 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 ownership of property, a, a robust and 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 uh, and fair legal system. He didn't go in there and then say, "Okay, we win. You have to write a constitution. You have to. You, you lost, and now you're gonna." We're going to pull you up into the realm of uh, civilized people and then let, let them write a constitution that totally destroyed that. That would – we had a much clearer vision of, of reality back in those days. But in 2000 and – what was it? Five or six is what we did in Iraq. And we did the same kind of thing in Afghanistan when it turned out that we had some of our soldiers who – physically went in and prevented young boys from being raped by tribal chieftains, chucked out of the army, uh, charges brought against them, and that kind of thing. In other words, you've got this battle, uh, ideological battle. We have soldiers there that are supposed to be representing our civilization. These soldiers see something has been going on there for thousands of years, and they see and hear these boys being raped by these village elders, and they decided to do something about it. And they got into a lot of trouble over it. So was that a failure of America's policy or was that a failure of America's political leadership, which didn't want to, um, which didn't want to go the distance, right? You, you, got, you, you got all this blood and treasure spent and money and effort and, and, and all of this turmoil to get to this place, and when you get to this place, you don't want to, you don't want to cross the last T's and dot the last I's. You 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 go there talking about freedom and 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 civilization and and law, and and you've subdued the country militarily, and then when push comes to shove, you're uh, see. I think it's just I think I think it's even then it was just a form of leftism, right? Well, yes, we've taken over the country, yes, yes, and um, and now, yes, but we don't want to force our values on them. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But we didn't. We that that's where that's where that kind of political correctness got in there and said, who are we to tell these village elders that that have been you know raping uh, small boys ever since there's been in Afghanistan? Who are we to tell them how to run their lives? Um, you know, or who, or we don't want to lose their cooperation, or whatever. It's one or the other, right? You either, either you, you either are going to accept the fact that that's their culture and that's what's going on, and you watch it from a distance, or if you decide to prevent uh, Afghanistan being used again as a base for terrorist operations, and you decide you're going to go in there and kick open that um, that hornet's nest. Well, if you do that and then squash all the hornets. And then you and then you stop at the moment where you are at the moment where you have to stand up for the, the reason you went there in the first place for your values. Then you then you get what you deserve. And for those people who say that it's impossible to to have a, a modern society in Iraq or in um, Afghanistan, I would refer you to travel brochures from the 1950s and 60s. Uh, there's a travel brochure for um, Kabul, Afghanistan, and you see all these beautiful 
beautifully maintained streets with flower beds. And then here's a picture of what it looks like today. And it's completely bombed out rubble with nothing but dirt. Here's a group of, of, of uh, Iraqi women walking down the street in miniskirts, laughing and cheery, having a fine old time. And, and, and they're going off to, to their university to study medicine or whatever the case may be. All of these things were in place and working just fine before uh, Ayatollah Khomeini came along and um, and uh, did that, right? So it's not like it's it's not like it's impossible. It's just you're gonna have to do it yourself. And and um, and I, and this, this, see, this is when I. Uh, it's funny because I I supported both of those wars and I still do, and and even though uh, the 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 reasons you know this this business of, of building uh, republics where all of this tyranny was, I I still support them because of the number of enemy combatants that were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. There were. There's a hundred thousand terrorists that are dead in the ground because of our soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if they weren't in the ground of Iraq and Afghanistan, then they'd be here at the shopping center. Now that is beyond dis dispute as far as I'm concerned. But with that said, you had an opportunity. And, and look, it's and and it's like we we don't know how Iraq could have ended. All I know is that when. The surge happened and, and everything started to go right. And then the last seven months of Bush's presidency, I don't think there was a single soldier killed in Iraq. And then along comes the Obama administration and they can't even sign a simple, um, uh, what is it, a SOFA agreement, state of something or other. He couldn't even sign a, a fundamental agreement to keep bases there. We have bases in 175 locations around the world or something like that. Okay. And I, that's when I realized it. You know, it doesn't matter what what we do, or how successful we are on the battlefield, even how successful we are in the school rooms over there. As long as the Democrats are here, they will undo it. the The Vietnam War ended exactly the way as it started, with the North Vietnamese up above the parallel, and a and a independent South Vietnam. That's what. That's what Vietnam looked like when we got there, and it's what Vietnam looked like when we left. Their status of forces agreement, thank you. Um, the, the North invaded the South. We went and stopped them and fought awfully for five, six years, and suddenly we didn't fight awfully, and then, then all right, then, then we get the peace agreements, and they're back behind the line, same as Korea. And then comes Watergate, and then comes an election, and then the Democrats just give it away. They just give it away. Ukraine had an incredible number, I don't know what the number was, of nuclear weapons of their own. And we told Ukraine uh, in the 1990s, Bill Clinton told Ukraine in the 1990s, we give you our word. I'm giving you my word. Well, it turns out that Bill Clinton's word is not worth an awful lot, and neither is the uh, word of the United States of America either. Um, we gave our word to a lot of people in uh, Afghanistan, too. Uh, and some of those were the people we saw dropping out of those airplanes, hanging on to that promise that we made them as the promise goes sailing off into the wild blue yonder. And my feeling now is that if, if we cannot keep a fundamental uh, 
promise to anybody because of our uh, ever-changing political perspectives, then we shouldn't be making promises. Ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies. And, um, and I don't like living in a world this cynical. And, uh, and I don't like living in a world that, where, where this country is so... It's not. It's it's not even something to pity. It's 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 something to look at with just genuine amazement. Like, it's like looking at uh, a cigarette tray or an ashtray or something. Just seeing one of those would be wonderful or weird enough. Anyway, it's like watching a coffee mug stand up, hop off of the countertop, and then and then turn towards you and then belt out. You know, um, maim. Uh, you know, and, and sing a show tune right there on your countertop. You just look at it in amazement, like, how is this possible? How can this possibly be happening? That's what I feel like now when I watch uh, the President of the United States or the Vice President of the United States or the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And, um, you know, when Donald Trump said to Vladimir Putin, Vlad, you know, you, you go into um, Ukraine and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit Moscow. Well, he didn't go into Ukraine when he said that. And I don't know if you've seen the quote, I'm sure most of you have, where Trump was talking about dealing with China, and he said, um, look, this is easy. You want to stop this? It's easy. I'm going to slap a 25% um, tax on China, on their imports. And I'm not going to send somebody who says, we're going to slap a 25% chance on you. I'm going to send somebody who says, we're taxing you 25%, you MFR. And he didn't say MFR. And I thought, and then, then, okay, great. It's difficult to see things that so clearly and, and then to just be overwhelmed by numbers of people who just, they just won't look at it. It's really uh, gut-wrenching. However, um, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, um, if you are speaking a word of truth, that outweighs the rest of the world. I thought, that's not badly put. So there you go. I did a, I often talk about the show I just did with Zoe because we do the Stratosphere Lounge on Thursday nights. We shoot Virtue Signal on Thursday afternoons, so this stuff is fresh in my mind. Um, and uh, I was trying to think about what it's going to take for people to stop voting for these, for these people. I was dealing with the situation of the crime rate in New York. A subway murder rate is higher than it's been in 40 years. Chicago's murder rate all of these murder rates going through the ceiling, and I was dealing with trying to come to grips with this question of what's it going to take for these people to change their mind um, because clearly their, California hadn't been hurt enough to recall Newsom. Los Angeles hadn't been hurt enough to recall this um, George Soros uh, city attorney. So the beatings will continue, and the question is how long will they continue? 
And um, we're going to find out in about three weeks, I suppose. But I kept trying to come to grips with what is it about, um, uh, what's the dynamic? And I realized that the, the, real, the, the real dynamic going on out there right now is the sunk cost fallacy. That's really what it comes down to. I'm sure that's 80% of the psychological driver of why this stuff has to keep getting worse and worse and worse and why people don't wake up and change their minds. It's sunk cost fallacy. Those who are unfamiliar with the concept, basically what, what the sunk cost fallacy says is, well, I had this idea and I thought it was going to be a good idea. So I put a ton of money, effort, time, and, and work into it. It's not working, but since I've got so much effort into it, I have to keep going in order to recover that effort. I'm pot committed now. I have no other way around. I, I, I have got no choice. And the antidote to the uh, sunk cost fallacy is, is, the, the, is the act of cutting your losses. And now you begin to see where, where the adults are, right? Where are the adults? Because an adult can look at a situation and say, I just gambled away my kid's college fund. I'm down $60,000. Most people would say, well, you can't walk away from the table down $60,000. You've got to keep playing until you get your $60,000 back at least, right? But an adult can say, no, this is a losing proposition. It always is a losing proposition. If it wasn't a losing proposition, there would be no casinos. So I'm down $60,000, and now I'm going to cut my losses and walk away because if I don't, I won't be down $60,000. I'll be down $400,000. And, um, and that means we will lose the house as well as the college education. The sooner I walk away from this table, the sooner I can start earning back the money that I just blew. That's what adults do. But it's so much of this is the reach of social media, you know. If you changed your mind like I did on politics, that wasn't national news. It didn't affect uh, hundreds of people. I didn't get, you know, when I started becoming a conservative, I didn't, um, uh, I didn't get hundreds of, of, of hate mail messages. That's what happens if you do it now. Um, so... Um, so this social proof is much higher now. Now, if you decide that you're going to cut your losses and change your political philosophy based on the fact that what you voted for isn't working, now all of your friends are gone. And all of the vitriol and all of the hatred and all of the stuff that comes out for people who, who, leave, the, um, who leave the flock, you know, that's all on you now. And so, the, the, you know, this we're in... We're in every so much of what we're doing is in not just not just I mean humanity has never been where we are now. Um, uh, I'm not going to read the stuff about the stuff I've already talked about. Um, uh, we are um, no one's no one's ever been here before, and. This thing, you know, this thing is like, 
this is um, it's kind of if you think about it it's a little strange if you think about the total lifespan of humanity including whatever is yet to come and you realize that ownership of one of these devices really is only managed well by a group of people that are born in a 15 20 year window um, the only people that I know who who uh, who, who things like the smart device provides more benefits than harm are people who grew up without smart devices. And so now it's all, you know, oh, I can find out what my bank balance is or I can look for that quote I've always wanted to know. But everybody coming after us, their brains are different. And, um, and, uh, and I'm not impressed uh, so far. Um, the one thing I've noticed about these TikTok videos, especially watching the, some Bowdoin's stuff, it's just soothing to me to watch him break these things down. But TikTok to me seems to be, of all the things about the, the people that are wrong about so many things, like Bill Burr, for example, um, it's the, of all of it, it's the lecturing part. It's the lecturing part. It's the here's why you're a racist, here's why you're fat phobic, here's, I'm here to tell you what's wrong with you. And I saw a couple of them on the way in, you know, it's like, uh, that's fat, fat phobic. And you, and if you, and if you think that, then that's because you're, you're fat phobic. And I realized, I guess I'm fat phobic then. And uh, this is the worst thing in the world, right? The worst thing in the world you can be is is a phobe or an ist. This is why I miss um, Norm McDonald so much, and he even he did the a little bit of the apology tour. But uh, of all the things that Norm McDonald said, uh, and he said so many brilliant, brilliant things. My favorite from a and the funniest thing he ever said from a philosophical point of view. He said, uh, he was talking about Bill Cosby and people were saying, you know, the, the worst thing about Cosby is the hypocrisy of it, just the hypocrisy of it. And Norm said, hmm, that's funny. I thought the worst part of it was the rape. And, and the, just the, the, the genius of that, right? Just the genius of it. Well, they said something that hurt my feelings or changed me. Yeah, okay, but I, I thought the actual raping part was worse. And and this is this is it, right? It's like you honestly you could ask these TikTok people, do you think it's worse to be a racist or a murderer? And they'll tell you racist every time. Um, and uh, this is a provable theory, you know, because uh, if you were um, tied up against a wall and somebody's got a knife at your throat or at your gut and then they say would you rather that I shove this knife between your ribs or would you rather that I call you by a racial epithet which one do you want I would take the racial uh, epithet than um, than a knife in the guts but that's the value system we have now 
So what do you get for that? Uh, here we go. Road Rider. First, Bill was Sabo effective? Sabo, I guess. It's from Sabbath, same same source, I think. I loved what his ingenious agitating what this ingenious agitating artist did in the past. For those of you who don't know who uh, Sabo is or was and what he did, not likely you can Google it, but perhaps you, Bill, can elaborate on who and what and if in hindsight he was effective. And second, you are being a little bit Sabo-ish with Diaz for Dungeon, can Sabo style agit art still be effective if for some reason without 5,000 of us began to create banners and bus stops or under stop signs or near ATMs, etc.? Third, can you imagine what the FBI would do to Sabo if he were to strike now? That's cheering. Uh, and thanks for everything you do. Thank you very much, uh, Roadrunner. And, um, okay. Uh, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with Sabo, um, I got to know him relatively well. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he did um, our T-shirts, uh, set of T-shirts. Let me see if I can find one. Talk amongst yourselves for a second. That's Sabo, um, and I uh, and I and I like him very much. He's a very quiet guy, very kind, um, very um, just a good just a good guy. Uh, the thing that I saw um, about when I first saw Sabo, and I thought, my God, the guy's a genius, is uh, this piece of art that I'm going to look for right now, real quick. This one. This is bloody marvelous. Come on now, you can do it. Okay, uh, this is the this is the thing I saw uh, that uh, Sabo did that I like so much. That's just genius, um, and. Uh, and and the rest of the stuff he's done is really like this. He did one of Ted Cruz with his yeah MMA fighter and tats and everything. But um, yeah, that's great. That's great stuff. And and he was putting these things up around L.A. And it was what he was doing with this stuff. Especially, especially in since look, Sabo wouldn't be anything if Sabo was doing it in you know, Texas. The fact that he was he was doing it in Santa Monica, and and when I first saw one of these, I was living uh, on the other side of the hill, and I had to get on the freeway every day, and it, I saw one of these right on the ramp, and I knew that this was really pissing off just about everybody that went by. But for me, 
it was um, it was liberating. It 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 was uh, it was like social proof. It was like no, you're not the only person out there who who um, who who thinks this way, and it was uh, really that kind of thing is really really important. Um, I don't know uh, what's actually happened to him. I hope he's gone on to a successful career. Uh, but the problem is bigger than um, than Santa Monica billboards. I saw uh, Zoe's segment was on this something, this guy who did um, my generation and your generation, you know, talking about the Gen Zs, and he's, you know, this guy's born in 88, so... He's, um, you know, was Zoe's segment on the um, virtue signal. And I said, man, I thought this was a guy I'd have to tell to get off my yard. It turns out this young guy is telling other people to get off my yard. Um, and I thought that was really, really cool. We're going to find out, you know, in a few weeks what uh, the temperature is. Um, I've been roundly mocked and pilloried for this, but I don't care. Uh, I saw the numbers on the betting uh, get worse and worse and worse, and then they started turning around significantly. Uh, and it may not be an accurate predictor of what the vote is going to be, but it's certainly measuring something. And I haven't checked it in, in a while, so let's just see what the, um, what the uh, betting odds are saying about the country right now. Because it was shocking. All right. Enough of that number. That's not bad. Here, I'll get you, get you your weekly updates here. Yeah, it was it was like collapsing, and now it's not. Hang on. Here we go. So uh, here we go with um, people who are putting their their money where their mouth is. Come on, you slow, slowly. Thank you. Yes. All right, here's the latest. Um, it's House Control for 2022. And you can see that uh, right around where the S was in September, these numbers were really colliding. Now, in the Senate, they actually crossed. Um, let's see what the Senate is doing. Oh, man. Look at that. Look at that. That's good news. You like this. Um, come on, baby. Check this out. So, you could see, if you look at um, June and July, just before the, uh, the, the second J, we were just a huge, huge advantage over the Democrats. And then something happened, and that immediate drop, then a rebound, then another drop to the point where we were then, we were then down to 32% or something chance of winning the Senate. Hi there, Rasset Bannon. Sorry. Even if the GOP wins back the House and the Senate, will it be just like the Obama years all over again? That's a good question. We'll, we'll, let's explore that. 
Um, this is uh, this is this is really really encouraging, and um, down 2.5 percent for the Dems in the last day. How much? Oh, that's because that's a screen grab and it won't behave uh, the way. Hang on a second. Um, let me see. In the last uh, week, seven percent change in the last week. That's a big number. Democrats have gone down seven percent. Republicans have gone up seven percent in the last week. Um, so, um, what does all this mean? This is the thing I can't completely uh, understand. I I I have a pretty good idea what caused the red to drop and the blue to, to, to rise around um, June or July. Uh, that was around the time of the um, Supreme Court decision on abortion and the Mar-a-Lago raid. Uh, but uh, it looks like, I mean, I, I really think in another day or two it'll be, it'll be more than 50-50, and frankly, none of this really matters. The only thing that matters is the vote, but still, uh, when I saw those numbers invert and when it got to the worst, you can see that point there right between the, uh, let's see, right on the S or so. When the Dems were the highest and the Republicans were the lowest, I just thought, what happened? And I would not pleased at all about that. But um, uh, it's looking, it's looking uh, a lot better now. So um, will it be the same as, as uh, you know, with Obama? Um, I don't know. I, uh, you know, the obviously the last well, the last time we had the House and the Senate, we also had the presidency, and we didn't do a damn thing. That was beyond belief. When Obama swept in two thousand and eight, he got everything done in, that he wanted to do in two years, and we um, uh, didn't do a damn thing. Um, and, and to be honest, I think that's because none of us really realized just how serious the problem was. That was the thing about the Trump administration was they pulled out everything they had on the night of the 2016 election. Then they had pulled out everything they had during his uh, term. And then they dropped the, the nuclear weapon that they've been keeping in their pocket on the 2020 election. And so now the question is, if we get the House and the Senate back, will we fight like it's the final like end days or will we just go back to business as usual i don't know i've been pleased watching ted cruz and um and a couple of others grilling these people rand paul great example um and uh and that is that is the hope is that the country is much more that the Republican Party is much more um, alarmed. Holly is the man. Yes, Josh Holly. Um, be fire. Put that up there. But that was the name I was looking for. I couldn't place. I got a bit of a crush on Josh Holly. To be perfectly honest with you, um, honestly, he's. Uh, I, I watch him dismantle these people. And I say to myself, this isn't really that difficult. It's just, you just have to be willing to do it. And um, I think uh, 
yeah, there's some people talking about Mitch McConnell. Um, I had, there was a lunch with Mitch McConnell back in 2009 or 10, I think. And um, so that's, you know, 12 years ago. And I was sitting right next to him. And um, and McConnell just couldn't get over the fact that he would had, had spending cuts for that totaled $10 billion over the course of three years. That was, he just couldn't get over it. It was like he was so proud of it, he just kept coming back to it. And I thought to myself, um, you know, um, we really are uh, in for some, some real trouble here. Um, King of Clean says he's very sick of Ted Cruz. Guy seems really, really, really like a big fat phony to me. Uh, I've known Ted Cruz really pretty well. He was the guy who got me my honorary Texas citizenship, and um, and the, and I don't think Ted is a phony. I I think that Ted comes off as a phony, and I think that that's why um, he doesn't certainly didn't get more traction in the presidential race. There's something about his cadences and his face that don't sound sincere but he is if you look at his record uh hard to improve on he's um he's but but i mean it's 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 something to do with his delivery uh i don't think it's got to do with his character i just think it's his delivery i know that uh, when i would uh i i introduced him in a number of events and and I was so I was sitting in the front row when he was doing the the, the main speech, um, and uh, I know when 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 Ted was about to deliver a joke, it's like he had he had this wind up, you know, and you could see this joke coming in from the next county, and and it was so. Um, rhetorically artless that it 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 sounded I mean if you can if you can see a joke coming and then you just check in your watch for the you know for the for the punchline that's that's a a, a, a rhetorical issue but um, but in terms of his record and and he's a he's a real believer he's a true believer and uh, who was it? Was it um, Scalia? I think. He, I think. I think Ted Cruz was a clerk for Scalia. Uh, Scalia said he's the most brilliant guy he'd ever seen, and um, and and so I think. I think. I think Ted's the real deal. Trey Gowdy's the real deal. Sears, this woman in Georgia, is the real deal. Um, the uh, and by the way, if this gets back to Ted. This story, that's fine. I just wanted to get back to him with a full understanding that he has nothing but my undying respect, admiration, and uh, vote, uh, as well as my affection. I really love the guy. He came across the airport in Fort Lauderdale, walked some significant distance just to say hi to me, and uh, and he didn't have to do that. Uh, and so I really, really like and admire him. I think he'd be a fine president. I think he's a fine senator. I think he'd be a fine Supreme Court justice. But um, we need more of them. And um, and uh, he's, um, you know, Donald Trump said some nasty things about him because Donald Trump said some nasty things about everybody. But I think that I think that Ted Cruz 
has defended Donald Trump aggressively from the moment that that primary ended. And, um, and, uh, and I, I just think that says a lot. Um, I remember thinking when, when his presidential campaign was running in the 2016 uh, election, I remember thinking, I would like to get hired so that I can go over there and teach Ted Cruz how to not act on camera. Um, because he's not, he's not lying. He's, it's not fake. It, it looks fake, but it's not. It, it's, just, it's just a sort of a, a stiffness and a formality, which, by the way, is not there when you get him you know, one-on-one. He's a, he's a completely fluid guy. Um, but in any event, um, yeah, uh, Ted is, uh, is a great guy and, um, and everything I see of DeSantis makes me like him uh, better and better and better. Uh, saw Biden there in Florida, said, thank you, Gov. Okay. Boy, I'll tell you, there's one thing that this Hurricane Ian has shown us as the so-called president of the United States. And that is that I don't guess there's any doubt anymore about uh, about climate change. I think it's the only. I, I'm pretty sure that was the only hurricane of the season. Usually you get twelve or something like that. Um, and I'm getting plenty tired of 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 this uh, particular desperate theme as well. All right, let's see. Getting back to uh, the questions here. Um, uh, okay, let's do uh, G.K. Masterson. Hey, Bill, considering the fact that we seem to be staring down the barrel of World War III this time, things will glow. Are you planning to get out of one of the primary targets for nukes? I am not in the slightest bit worried about nuclear warfare uh, or nuclear strike on Los Angeles. I'm not in the slightest bit worried about that. It doesn't even enter my radar. Uh, and the reason for that is pretty simple, really. The, um, we went through 70 years of Cold War, and the ideology on both sides was so much more polarized than it is now that um, that was the, that's if it was going to happen, that's when it's going to happen. In other words, if you're in a submarine during the Cuban Missile Crisis and you're in a Soviet submarine and you're getting depth charged by American destroyers, which is what actually happened, and you decide you're not going to launch that nuclear torpedo because the consequences are so overwhelming, or if you're in, uh, in charge of a, of a Soviet missile battery, and, uh, and you see on your radar screens incoming American warheads and you have orders to launch on warning and you don't want launch on warning in the height of the Cold War with this evidence of the first American strike coming in, if you don't launch then, then I don't see any way to launch uh, a full-scale nuclear war. Now, just so everybody's clear, it doesn't mean that I don't think that there could be a tactical nuclear warhead. That's within the realm of possibility. Um, but everybody 
throw in for the fences. I don't see any world at all where that happens, at all. Um, I, I just don't think anybody would carry out the orders uh, because they didn't carry out the orders when the ideology was at its full tilt boogie, right? If the Soviets wouldn't launch in 1962 or in 1987, then I'm not so sure that the Russians would launch in 2022. Uh, I just, I just, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't scare me. And I think that's really um, it, you know, is that it's, when he says, you know, we're not bluffing about the nuclear option, and I said, okay, well, then, uh, you know, we're holding cards too. Um, no, I can't, I, I just, I simply can't, I can see Putin getting desperate enough to do that um, in, uh, uh, in Ukraine. But even then, look, even the military, even the military analysts who are talking about it seriously are saying if he if he does do it, he's going to have to deliver it by aircraft because he can't count on a missile battery. He can't count on getting all seven of those guys together. Um, and, uh, you know, I also have. Uh, I think of for the average uh, layman, a really superb sense of um, of the scale of these things. Uh, so I don't um, I don't see Burbank or Van Nuys Airport as the uh, top of the targeting list. It's one thing when you got 25,000 nuclear weapons, you got enough to bounce the rubble, but we're down to 6,000 now or something like that. Um, and uh, I'm genuinely, it just, it's not, it's not on my radar. Uh, um, it's one of the very few things that I would actually like to be proven right about rather than proven wrong about. Um, but I just simply don't, it's inconceivable to me, and I, and I, um, I had been toying with the theory well well prior to the Ukraine invasion that nuclear war may not have ever been possible. I know that that's a controversial thing to say, but I'm actually uh, looking at the Cold War history as closely as I did. I'm, and, and hearing some of the behind-the-scenes things that Reagan would say or Eisenhower would say, and uh, it, it it's it seems to me that the most likely case was the was the one that actually happened, and that was that these weapons are so awful, and the and that there is simply no win available. There is no win, um, and. At the height of the Cold War, when we were banding around megadeths, you know, well, if we strike first, we may only get 30 megadeths, uh, but if we don't, then we'll get 120 megadeths, you know, a million people killed. Um, Dave Big Booty says supposedly Reagan and Gorbachev refused to launch in a simulation. Uh, yeah. Now, um, 
I don't think Putin is, I, I certainly don't think Putin is insane. I, I know for a certain fact that he's got uh, dictator disease. He's surrounded by yes men and he's told what he wants to hear. And so when he finds out that they're, he's called up 300,000 soldiers and then he finds out half of them have fled the country and then he finds out there's no uniforms for the other half. He's supposed to have a million uniforms in stock. Turns out they're not there. Turns out they're not there because somebody took the money for the uniforms, didn't deliver the uniforms. That kind of being totally misinformed is a genuine danger, but he's not insane. And, um, and so what possible what possible motivation could there be for for that um you know i mean and even if you factor in the emotional stuff look if it, if there were nato if there were m1s on the you know blown holes in the wall of the kremlin then i might be you know um I'd, I'd readjust my uh, my calculations, but this is um, no matter what Putin says, everybody knows that they're the ones who did the uh, aggression, and so I, I just don't I just it it doesn't enter my uh, radar. I just it's absolutely out of the question. I think my wife is concerned about ukrainians um attacking into russia and i said that's something else you don't have to worry about honey uh, but you know it doesn't seem to work um when you've got family there uh it's um i've tried to swat that idea down as many times as i could and i'm not going to try anymore uh all right, uh, let's see here. Um, Marisha Dark, uh, let me just have a look. Let's scroll down here. What do we got? Oh, one page. Uh, okay, uh, abortion and spite. While reading this article on Hamiltonian spite and game theory, it occurred to me that one reason why the left might be trying to actively push for abortion as a means... It occurred to me that one reason why the left might be trying to actively push for abortion is as a means of competition. Leftists are less likely to have children of their own for various reasons, and thus their ideas are less likely to reproduce through familial and genetic lines. Thus, they tend to resort to ideologically capturing and converting children of their right. They can't or won't have kids of their own, so they need to steal yours to survive at a lineage level. That's kind of an interesting idea. However, that's, if that's not possible, then pushing the right to have more abortions would achieve a similar end by reducing the number of rightists, again, if we consider those cases of ideology passing through kin, and thus the number of competitors uh, within the same ideological space. And here's a link to Hamiltonian spite, which, to be perfectly honest, we have never heard before. Let me read the first sentence. Okay. Huh. Um, there is. Uh, there's no question that that the when you when we're talking about the like the women that we saw on that episode that started a couple of virtue signals ago, these two women sitting there on a radio or on a podcast 
talking about how much they wanted to have their abortions live streamed and, 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 and digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper down the vile tunnel. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that, that while those people were playing for the spotlight, there's no doubt in my mind that this is what they fully believe and that if they could do it, they would do it. Uh, those people are irredeemably evil people those two individuals and um and and this entire ideology is is irredeemably evil it's not just wrong and it's not just stupid and it's not just uh invasive it's evil by any rational definition of it it's it's evil um and and just to be clear about this because this is something that's not going to get me any points on either side but the thing about it for me that's evil is not so much the abortion as the celebration of the abortion. You can have an opinion that is predicated on the, hey, you know, I have no religious beliefs or whatever and my choice. You can have that opinion, uh, but but to celebrate this thing, to make it uh, to make it the, the the price of admission into the club. Now you're really getting into Moloch territory. Now you really are. You really are very close now to just throwing babies into the fire. Um, and, and this business of, um, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, the, the hatefulness of, of these people, uh, and, and I've never seen, I've never seen any one of them smile. Talked earlier on the show tonight about how TikTok is essentially technology for people who don't know anything to lecture people about morality that they know nothing about. Uh, and and if I see one more person leaning into uh, the camera, you know, with the vertical frame going, let's talk about uh, about uh, fat phobia. Let's talk about um, about white privilege. It's like, well, you go ahead and talk about it all you want to. Uh, I don't really give a damn what you have to say about anything. You, you, you sit there like, you know, Confucius or Aristotle, like you're laying down the, the law and the truth. You know, you, you don't, you don't, you can't name three countries other than, the, you, you, you don't know where, you, you can't multiply three times three times three. You're not the kind of person I feel like I need to, um, to uh, listen to, you know? Um, but they're so, they're so hate-filled. They're so, um, I'm talking about the political TikToks, right? Some of them are very fun. Some of them are really, really fun. Um, but the, but the, the, these, but this is, seems to be, you know, and it's like, what do you expect? What else can this, what else can this Generation Z do? They haven't ever had to compete at anything. In fact, they, they, they've been bashed over the head for competing. Um, and, uh, and all, they, they don't know math, they don't know history, they don't know science, they don't know any of this stuff because they haven't been taught any of this stuff. The only thing they've ever been taught is about injustice and the only skill they have is protesting. Um, and there is going to come a point, you know, when, um, uh, there is going to come a point when they are going to be the, uh, the, the when they will be orphans. Right there, there will come a point. This is this is just a logical certainty when Gen Z will be 
there will be nobody to take care of Gen Z above Gen Z. And I don't suspect the people downstream of Gen Z are going to be a big hurry to take care of them, given how charming so many of them are. Um, but uh, that's when that's when the 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 real reality uh, will hit. I'm not. I don't believe that there that there's uh, that they're on the verge of AI, but I do believe that they are able to make uh, very high level statistical predictions, which is. If you want to call that intelligence, it's not what I would call intelligence, certainly not what I would call self-awareness, but without question, you throw enough computing problem at enough data, you can you can make some fairly accurate predictions, especially if you're constantly refining the 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 algorithms. And um, and it seems to me that uh, the people who are making the decisions about uh, which attorney generals or which uh, state or city attorneys get elected, the people that are putting money into student, uh, into teachers' unions, and what's being taught, and all the rest of it, all of the left, basically. Uh, if you look at the product, the product. If if you think of the, if you think of progressive, modern progressive politics as a, as an ideology, that produces a kind of a person, then the product that they're putting out is. Uh, is somebody who is um, narcissistic, uh, extraordinarily uneducated, absolutely certain that they're right, mean-spirited, insecure, and emotionally crippled. And um, those are what they're turning out in large numbers. And those are exactly the qualities you would want to be in the generation that would be the cleanup generation, not the not the perpetual generation, the cleanup generation. So I'm working on the Soviet secret police, and and so you've got to have secret policemen that will go after traitors, let's say, and people who've been accused of espionage and kill those people. Okay. Now we want to go after the old Bolsheviks, the people who who were part of this revolution. Well, these secret policemen won't go after the old Bolsheviks because they grew up with the old Bolsheviks and they know that they buddied around with Lenin and, you know, so they have like some trepidation. So now you have to get younger people who have no respect or know who these old Bolsheviks are. They'll come in and they'll kill the old secret policemen. Then you can have those people kill everybody in the party. And then you have to have another generation of secret police that come up and kill the murderers and so on and so on and so on. And this Gen Z seems to be uh, bred for um, uh, hate and anger and um, and 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 absolute lack of uh, humility or or humor. Um, and so, if I wanted to create a generation to essentially destroy institutions, this is what I'd be building. It would look exactly like this, and. I find that hard to believe that that is a, a coincidence. So um, the question is how how deep is it? The good news is is that there is that if you if you want to treat people like herd animals and you want them to be um, submissive and you want them to not be the kind of people that will come after you with guns if you try to take all their food away, 
If that's the kind of person you're breeding, Eloy, basically, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. They're like Eloy with attitude. That's that's what that's what uh, we're, we're creating now. Is we're creating we're creating Eloy with attitude. They're they're soft. They're useless in terms of skill sets. They have no independence. They're dependent on the Morlocks for food. And they're exceptionally good looking. I don't think anybody can take that away from them. And um, and and they're they're Eloy. But unlike the Eloy, who were just grazers, you know, they're just rabbits or sheep. These are these are mean spirited people. But fortunately, they're mean spirited people who are extraordinarily fragile, and that um, helps because the people to be afraid of are the mean spirited, angry people who have uh, who have no feelings, not the people who have too many feelings. Um, I don't fear that generation at all. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I certainly fear the damage that they can do institutionally, but in terms of my personal safety, doesn't, doesn't really do it for me. Um, they're not street fighters. The Antifa subset, that particular fungus, uh, thinks they're street fighters, and they dress like street fighters, and they act like street fighters as long as nobody's actually fighting. But when, when it comes to that, they run and cry. So I'm not worried about them like that, the way I'd be worried about the Cheka or the Gestapo or the SS or something like that. Um, and that's, uh, that, that's a comforting thought, right? I'm not saying they won't pull triggers. I'm just saying they won't pull their own triggers. These are not the people you send out. I just had a funny. I just had a funny thought. Um, you just imagine these kids from Oberlin being sent to Texas to um, to take away ranchers' guns with guns. We're going to give you Oberlin art students, you studies students. Here's a couple of uh, weapons. Go out there and take those guns away from those uh, conservatives. We wouldn't even have to reload, right? I mean, um, so they're they're like it's like that generation is 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 custom designed for the the information age. They're designed. They're they're like they're they're social media warriors because that's where the fight is. And I say social media, I mean in a larger sense of the, the pop culture and all that other stuff. They're, they're perfect for that because they're spoilers, right? They're, they're, when I say they're spoilers, they're, um, they're people who have so much anger and so much outrage built into them by their teachers that they're perfect for them. These are the kind of people that go to look at Jeremy's razors, a perfect example, right? So Harry's razors pulls its advertising from Daily Wire because somebody with two Twitter followers started bitching and moaning to Harry's razors. This is perfect. This is what they're good at. One or two of them can get together, make enough noise. That's it, basically. That's what they do. They find a target, and then they'll make a lot of noise. Um, and then, um, okay, uh, and because uh, the corporate shells are so soulless, uh, they'll back down. 
everybody's back down in front of this generation. Everybody's back down. Um, now, Bag of Sprite says you don't need art students to do that. The police would be more than happy to do it, regardless of whether it's red or blue state. Not, I don't disagree with you on that um, Bag of Sprite, because I have seen uh, the police in this country do things I never thought I'd see the police do. But with that said, um, I also uh, I don't find the, 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 the fascists that are in the police force currently the you better listen to us, we're going to lock you all up, you know, do what I say, those kind of things. Um, I don't find those people to be particularly brave either. So we'll see. Um, look, and, and we talk, it's so easy to talk about a generation like everybody that age is that way. It doesn't mean that at all. I'd be, I'd be willing to bet you that, that the taken as a percentage, most of Gen Z is perfectly fine. It's just an extraordinarily loud and particularly annoying um, and vocal subset of Gen Z. I don't know how I don't know how much of Gen Z is is uh, is affected or infected with that ideology. But um, I do know that they don't strike me as the kind of people that I desperately must have on my side if things start to go south. Now let's see here. That's an interesting question. Uh, Henry Lumley, hey, Bill. So we've all have discussed the Democrat bad policies and ad nauseum. Other than cowardice, what are the worst Republican policies? Um, I mean, I got, I've definitely got something in mind. I'm just trying to figure out the, uh, the best way to kind of triangulate around it. I think currently the, 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 the worst um, conservative or Republican uh, traits that I see now are, um, are uh, overreaction. Um, Race Bannon, not only uh, are you Gen Z in here, hopefully you count for something, but the very fact that you've chosen as a name Race Bannon gives me hope for the future. And I pretty much mean that. Um, overreaction. I understand it because I understand this dynamic because I am, am prone to it. Uh, like, like virtually everybody else who's been under attack for their adult lives. When you've been defamed and slandered and and um, and uh, not only that but you know called a murderer by the murderers called a, you know a, a traitor by the traitors that that kind of thing um, that builds up a, a perfectly understandable in fact essentially a, a, a an unavoidable fight reflex. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's fight or flee, and we don't want to flee, so we'll fight. And it can drive people into unreasonable positions. Uh, if it turns out that it's raining, 
and a liberal says it's raining, that doesn't mean that it's not raining. Um, and there is a, a lot of, of that now that I see where, where the, the, the poking has been so intense now that any time we get poked about anything, we will automatically fight back against something even though what the thing we're fighting back against may in fact be true. I mean, I don't know whether they did it by accident or whether the clock, you know, the stop clock right, right twice a day or, 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 or whatever. But just because um, progressives are in favor of something doesn't mean it's automatically wrong. It means it's almost always wrong, but it's not always wrong. And, um, and I have, uh, I have seen, um, I've seen a lot of that. Uh, and, uh, the thing about the left that I despise the most is their uniformity of thought and their inability, let alone unwillingness to, to handle differing ideas with civility. And I'm seeing a lot of that now among, um, conservatives because, uh, you can only poke somebody in the eye long enough before somebody just starts flailing around and won't get poked in the eye anymore. Um, it's uh, it's it's something to be aware of and something to be careful of. I think that people say, you know, well, we don't want to become them in order to fight them. Yes, I I agree with that, but we. Um, So, so it, again, this is this is not. It may sound contradictory, but it isn't. I don't think you can play fair with the left because they don't play fair. At the same time, I don't want to become them, and I don't want to become like them, and I don't think it's necessary. I know that the Marines uh, met the Japanese in the Pacific, found out what kind of an opponent they are, were tailored their response to that, fought a horrific, horrifically vicious no quarter uh, war. And when the war was over, those same Marines didn't go home like samurai. They went home like the farmers that they were when they started. And the same is true of the Civil War and all, all the rest of this stuff. You can, you, you are sometimes forced to fight dirty against people who fight dirty. You shouldn't start by fighting dirty. But if somebody's fighting dirty and you, and you aren't, you're gonna lose, then, then either change your strategy or, or, or all the good people go away. So if somebody's fighting dirty, then you fight dirty back. But when they stop, you stop. And, and don't, um, if, you, if you hold on to that and you, keep, and you keep that attitude, like now the only way to get through life is to fight dirty all the time, then you've actually lost. Um, and it's not easy, you know? It's not easy. There is an emotional, uh, um, uh, as much as, Nobody can deny that emotions are, are such a big part of everything. The thing that I find that the, the reason we're so ineffective is because we are absolutely unwilling to, to deal with emotions um, for the same reason. This is the exact same dynamic. The left uses emotions um, by cheating. They cheat. They lie in order to get an emotional reaction out of people. We see that emotional reaction predicated on the lie, and we say the problem is the emotional reaction. Actually, the problem is the lie. Um, uh, uh, 
running uh, to save a, a friend who's had a leg blown off in combat, that's an emotional reaction too. It doesn't mean it's bad because it's an emotional reaction. It means it's, it, it means is, is the reaction, is it true? Is it real? Is it true? And, um, and I think I could probably sum all this up to say our daily um, oiling of the armor and sharpening of the swords and, uh, and all of that stuff that we have to do on a daily basis, we should be doing that not in defense of conservatism or Republicans. We should be doing it in defense of the truth. And, uh, and if, you, if you make that your, um, your, loads, your lodestone, if, if the truth is your northern star, then you won't go wrong. But if if it turns out that that you've been, if it turns out that that progressives have been uh, touching the truth inappropriately for as long as they have been, and you begin to think that the enemy is the progressives when it's not, it's the lie, then you can start to have this kind of reaction that I talked about where you know, liberals, it's raining, liberals say it's raining, and you say, hell it is. That's not good for anybody. Um, nuclear secrecy nuke map, yeah. Uh, I've, I've seen these nuclear uh, explosion things. And, um, you know, uh, and by the way, uh, everybody's got to go somehow, and frankly, if it turns out I'm wrong about that, then I'm wrong about that. But... Uh, That'd snap us out of it. That would snap us out of it. Um, Eric Blake says, see Alec Jones, very emotional, constantly makes things worse for himself and our side. Yeah, it's a great example. The thing about it, Alex Jones is that Alex Jones is right. He's correct. And not only is he correct, he's correct five or ten years ahead of everybody else being correct, probably one out of six times. Um, but the times that he's incorrect are so loud and so destructive that, that he's a net deficit. Um, Quibo says the biggest nuke in the world wouldn't cause a lot of damage. Uh, that's quite true relative to the world, uh, but it, if you were um, standing underneath it, it would, it would hurt quite a bit. Actually, it wouldn't hurt at all. Um, we talked about this not too long ago. Uh, with the um, Chaluxalub impact. I think it was 100 trillion tons of TNT, 20 trillion Tsar Bombas, 20,000 billion Tsar Bombas. So no, you cannot destroy life on Earth with nuclear weapons. You could launch every nuclear weapon you got, and it's not going to destroy life on Earth. Uh, but at the same time, it could certainly ruin your weekend. Um, Dave Olson. God, I thought we were further along than I thought we were further along. Uh, hi, Bill. Hope all is well with you and Natasha and your extended family abroad. Thank you. So the Senate launch system is rolled out again, and they're scheduling its maiden launch for a week from tomorrow, although in fairness, it's wise to move it back to the VAB when Hurricane Ian rolled right over the launch site. In that time, SpaceX is slated to launch five missions, including one tonight at 
25 p.m. Now, again, this was, I think, scheduled for the 6th. Now, this is dated October 13th, so I guess there's one tonight. 8.25 p.m. Pacific time. That'd be pretty soon. Um, and there's a Falcon Heavy later this month, and there's a sixth launch scheduled for two days after the SLS's launch attempt. Chuckle, chuckle. Any rational person would look up at this and say we should scrap SLS and let Elon take a shot, but we haven't been rational nation for a long time. I'm just glad Artemis 1 is uncrewed so I can root for it to go kablooey with a clean conscience. Thoughts? Yeah. Um, uh, I want, uh, I want uh, Artemis to go kablooey. Uh, and I want it to go kablooey for the same reason what we talked about an hour ago. And that is the sunk cost fallacy. People, if you want this thing to succeed because of all of the money that we've spent on it, then its success will mean that we'll continue to pour money down this hole and have $4 billion per launch. Um, and uh, you can launch an awful lot of SpaceX for $4 billion. And in fact, uh, there's something you can do much, much, much more important than that. Than that. Um, so, yeah, I want it to go kablooey. I want it to go kablooey and have that be the end of it. And people say, well, we've spent, what, 20, 30, 40 billion dollars on this thing now? Yes. Let's have it explode before we spend 100 billion dollars on it. And, by the way, I have no doubt whatsoever that the year that NASA and the FAA combined and the EPA have prevented Elon Musk from flying the Starship, the, the year of red tape he's had to deal with is there specifically to let SLS get off the pad. Um, it is a standing army of obsolete equipment. And, and I, actually, I was thinking about SLS earlier today. You think about this for a minute. The entire, the entire argument for SLS was off the shelf, right? We don't have to do anything new. Since we don't have to do anything new, since we already know how to do all the things that SLS will consist of, then it should be a piece of cake. We're going to use space shuttle engines. We've been using those on the shuttles for 25, 30 years. We're going to use external tanks, SRBs. This is all 1970s technology. We've been flying this stuff for 30 years now. So SLS ought to be cheap, inexpensive, and fly that baby right off the pad. So what does it tell you that NASA cannot make a system that they've been running the parts of for 30 years work? What does that say about what NASA is today? It tells me that that NASA and Boeing just, I think it's just plain fraud to use those names, you know? I mean, NASA's brand for me was destroyed uh, after I found out what caused the Columbia disaster. I gave them Challenger, you know, but when I saw that it had happened again for the exact same thing happened, you know, twice, not the same failure, but the same... Uh, willful, willful, turning a blind eye willfully towards problems and, you know, changing the orbit of the space station so that we, so that the Russians can get to it and therefore meaning the space station is now useless for going out towards the ecliptic and the planet stuff, all of this stuff. It's, it's a standing army. It's a government program. It's a waste of time and money. And we've wasted a lot of money on it already. I'd like it to blow up. Um, and, uh, and it deserves to. It deserves to blow up. Um, and you know what's funny about all this? The reason why it's so badly built, 
The reason why it's so expensive and the reason why they can't get it to work is because nothing on it is new. That's why. Because there was at no point ever in the design of this system when people had to say, what could we do that would be creative and different here? How could we solve this problem without just throwing money at it? Oh, what, what problems are there to solve? You've got SRBs. We've had those since 1980. Flying since 1980. Shuttle main engines have been flying since 1980. Uh, that orange foam on the outside of the uh, tank, uh, the, the, the booster, that's been flying since 1980. I just this second realized... I didn't. I can't believe I didn't realize this until now. I just, in fact, I'm. I'm really quite shocked. Really quite shocked. That it did not really fully occur to me until just this second. But this is not. A, there. There is no second or third stage on this thing. It's a one-stage rocket. It's a single-stage to orbit rocket. Not counting the, the the SRBs, right? That's a one-piece rocket. I think I may be wrong, but I, I I don't seem to remember any kind of a seam there. So, okay, so you can't even do the staging anymore. Um, all right, so uh, so the reason it, the reason they can't even get the old off-the-shelf hardware to work is because it's old off-the-shelf hardware. Nobody cares. Anybody who's got any kind of creativity or drive is not going to be working on this stuff. Quiba wants to know, why can't we use the space shuttle? The space shuttle was a, was a I think the space shuttle was a real, real catastrophe. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I was thinking about this earlier. Look, the, the, I've seen several shuttle launches, and watching the shuttle go is impressive. Uh, but, and this is simple, 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 simple thing. But when you look at the space shuttle on the pad, and even when you see it launch, it doesn't look like it should be flying. It doesn't look right. And that's because it's not right. That's not what the space shuttle was supposed to be. Space shuttle was supposed to sit on top of a of a big honking jet engine and fly it up to you know thirty thousand feet, then shut off the jets, fire up some boosters, get the thing going, give it a good high alpha, and then it goes off of the back of this thing. The booster just flies back down and lands. They refuel it and so on. And and when you look at the space shuttle as it eventually flew, you look at this thing. You said this doesn't look right. It does. There's something really wrong with this design and. What's wrong with the design is budget cut, budget cut, budget cut, budget cut right in the middle of the program. And now you don't have money to do this either. Oh, really? Nope. So what are you going to do now? It's, it's, the, the space shuttle looks as bizarre as it does because it is, in fact, constructed out of Band-Aids. It's what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a Band-Aid system. And, um, and the, the bankruptcy of the shuttle became clear pretty soon after they started running the shuttles. Look, the shuttle was supposed to make getting into space cheap and inexpensive. And when I saw that Elon Musk was trying to recover his boosters, I went through a period of years thinking, I don't like the idea of, of, of rockets. I want something with wings on it. I want something that looks futuristic. And then I realized, no, 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 no. This is the smartest, click, cleanest, quickest way to go, is put things in a cylinder, you know? Minimize the frontal plate area. Minimize the, the total drag area and send it up and bring it back again. The, the shuttle was the most complex machine ever built. Um, and, uh, and you don't want that. You, 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 ideally, in a perfect world, you'd like to be saying this is the simplest machine ever built. Uh, so the shuttle 
to me was, uh, I mean, I remember all of it. I remember, I remember the drawings that came out about the shuttle in, in the years after Apollo. I remember them during Apollo Soyuz. I remember them during Space Lab, the shuttle's coming, shuttle's coming. I remember going to the Cape when the shuttle was getting ready to go. And I remember seeing all these launches and there is a certain, uh, I almost said majesty, but it's, I, I don't think majesty is the word. There's a certain impressiveness about watching a, 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 an airplane go up straight like that. But it doesn't look like it should be flying. And usually that's a pretty good determinant, you know, not always. I mean, Burt Rutan's stuff is strange looking, but it all looks like it should be flying. Um, anyway, uh, so why would so why would this STS succeed? Who, who's going to work on the STS, right? Let's say you're a, 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 a you know, people do usually do their best work in their 20s and their 30s. So you're a young engineer or aerospace expert or, or aerodynamicist or something like that. And they and they say to you, okay, we're ready to go. We're ready to hire some new people for this uh, shuttle uh, shuttle launch system, space launch system. And you get to say, okay, what am I going to get my hands on? Well, you're going to get your hands on rocket engines that were designed in the 70s, and you're going to get your hands on other technology that was designed in the 70s. And um, and you're going to go ahead and put those pieces together to make something that wasn't nearly as interesting as what they were originally designed for. Have fun. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's garbage. And what you find is is that, and here's what's interesting, the space launch system, which is every single bit of hidebound tradition, right, just designed by bureaucracy, SLS, and it doesn't work. And at the same time, you have uh, Jeff Bezos, who is doing exactly the opposite. He's going exactly down Elon Musk's path. Hey, man, we're going to build our own new engines, and we're going we're gonna to recover the rocket, and we're going to do all that. And he's failed, too. So that tells me that there's something pretty special about this Elon Musk fella, because Bezos has had the money and, and a big head start on, on, uh, on SpaceX. And it's not like SpaceX is doing something new and NASA is doing something old. That's true. But SpaceX is doing something new, and Blue Origin is doing something new, and Blue Origin is, is, is just, it's pathetic. They were supposed to be making the rocket engines, I think, for SLS or, or for something. And then it just, just, it's just, no, it's garbage. And um, the uh, Virgin Galactic, has that flown since, um, since uh, Branson's flight? I, I don't know if it has. I know that, that Branson pushed the flight. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to get it again. Really pushed that flight when he found out that Bezos was going to fly, then he had to fly first. So it's a miracle those people survived. Um, but they're failures, and they're failures because they're not taking it seriously. Branson went up in, to low Earth orbit. He, he went a suborbital flight. He didn't go to low Earth orbit. Low Earth, or, or, low Earth orbit, you can make a very compelling case that he didn't get into space either because he didn't cross the Kármán line. He just got 50 miles up, and they redefined what space is. It's typical of what happens in our age now. Um, 
you know, this is this is what losers do. You're offering space rides, and it turns out that your vehicle is too heavy, and you don't have the engine to get across the internationally recognized boundary of space, 100 kilometer Carmen line, right? So they go ahead and they fly to space, and then uh, what happens? They don't get to 100 kilometers. So they say, well, we got past 50 miles, and 50 miles has always been the definition. No, it hasn't. And I remember watching that flight and hearing the ground controller, mission controller woman saying, and they're returning from their flight to space, which as everybody knows is 50 miles high above. It's like, stop, just stop it. Just stop it. Just don't do it. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I thought that the, I thought that the, uh, Mechazilla and the chopsticks and all that stuff designed to catch rockets, that launch tower, I thought that was five or ten years out. It's just sitting there waiting for the paperwork to, to be signed. It's waiting for the ink to dry. Uh, that's holding up all that red tape. And the thing of it is, when he finally does get a chance to launch that, um, uh, the, um, the Starship, with the, the big booster, there's a pretty decent chance that thing will blow up. And this is why I am feeling Elon's pain, is that he's been forced by government red tape to stop his tremendously, unbelievably, mind-bogglingly successful process of blowing up his own rockets. This is how you make progress. This is how you do it. Um, we don't know what we don't know. And the only way to know is to, is to go out and find it. What caused this? We didn't plan that this rocket would explode at, you know, 30 seconds into the flight. Nobody had planned that, did they? Nope. What happened? Well, we don't know. But we know that it was none of the things that had caused them to explode before because we fixed those things. So you get the data back and then you find out, okay, it was this. Well, doggone it. Would have been nice if we could have seen that in advance, but nevertheless, there it is. So let's go in there and let's fix that. And now we're not going to have that problem again. We'll have a new problem, but we won't have that problem. And that's how it works. You know, there's a, a classic book out there called uh, Fate is the Hunter. Uh, and it's about the very early days of commercial aviation, with, you know, right after World War II with propeller driven four prop airliners. They're having, um, hey, Stephen Coco, uh, first time chat, hooray. Oh my gosh. We've been, um, have we been uh, bombed? I think we've been, we've, we are under attack. Um, hi everybody, we're talking, about, hey, look at that number. We're talking about the space launch system and, and how awful it is and how awesome Elon Musk is and, and why. Um, Musk succeeds because he, because it's his company. Right? It's his money. It's his company. And he says, we're going to fly this thing. And well, we can't guarantee it's not going to blow up. No, that's right. But we're going to fly it so it blows up. Not going to intentionally blow it up. We just, here's the rule. Okay? This is Elon Musk's rule, whether you realize it or not. I don't care how many times these rockets explode. I just don't want them to ever explode for the same reason twice. That's the magic formula. That's it. If you got that, you're, you're, you're all the way free blow up as many times as it has to 
anticipate all the failures we can, build, a, build, build our way around these failures, and if something explodes, okay, but we can never have it explode for the same reason twice, because if we did, we wasted an explosion. We had to have something explode, so we, we didn't know what we didn't know. And now we do, so don't, let's not do that anymore. Turns out it explodes because, uh, because this thing vibrates. Well, then stop letting that thing vibrate. Yes, sir, done. Off we go. And there does come a point when you reach, when you, when you turn a corner, you know, it's like the uncanny valley in, in graphics. You, you, you come out of the bucket where now he is, he's having fewer and fewer failures because frankly, he's gotten most of the bugs worked out of it. And I was just mentioning Fate is the Hunter. They, this uh, book about the early, early, early days of commercial uh, airliners in propeller airplanes. And they were having a crash a week, a week, and sometimes two. They would lose 60 people on a, you know, on a, on a, on a four-engine propeller airplane flies into a mountain. Well, why'd you fly into a mountain? Well, because our navigation system wasn't any good. Well, get a better navigation system. Okay. Well, it turns out we don't hit that mountain again. We know something else. And now we've gone 22 years, 21, 20, 21 years without an air crash in this country on a major carrier. We've never, we have, there are entire generations of people out there who have never ever seen uh, a, a, an airliner crash. And when I was growing up, and I mean growing up like in the, when I was 30, 40 years old, somewhere in there, they were still one or two pretty good ones a year. And then suddenly done, done. And we haven't had one since 2001. And uh, that record will eventually, eventually that will, be broken, but that doesn't defeat the fact that we have it. the reason planes don't crash anymore is because we've crashed enough of them to know what makes airplanes crash, and that's it. And uh, hey, the big house says he's got it right. The black box is paid off. Yes, yes, the black box is paid off. The black boxes and the only government agency that I still have a complete degree of confidence in, and that is the National Transportation Safety Board. Those guys go after the truth, and they don't give a damn who ends up in the spotlight. If it turned out that Boeing put a bolt on wrong, and that's what caused the crash, then that's what the report will say. Now, having watched everything else in the government get completely corrupted, I have no question that it's just a matter of time for the NTSB. But as things stand right now, it is still driven. And the reason I think the NTSB is still essentially uncorrupted is because it's so small. It's a really it's a, it's a tiny agency. There's not a whole lot of not a whole lot of cause for it because there's not so many plane crashes anymore because because the NTSC. So as a thousand hour pilot, I can tell you that aviation regulations are written in blood, and 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 so that's why Musk is successful is because he he understands. I, I covered this when I talked about the crash of the uh, Virgin Galactic vehicle. Death in the Mojave, I think it was called. It was a firewall. And basically what I said was, look, there is, a, there is essentially a fixed price to pay in order to do this. Most of it is money. A lot of it is time, but some of it is lives. It's a fixed price. We, we don't know what the price is, but we do know that you cannot get around paying it. There's, we can't negotiate our way up and down out of it. There is a fixed price necessary to master this technology, and that fixed price is a certain number of explosions and a certain number of lives, and that's the way it is. And if you don't want to play the game, 
Nobody's forcing you. But for God's sakes, get out of the way of the men who want to play the game because they understand the risks and they're and they're ready to move the ball. Okay, so let's go find out where. Let's have test pilots, courageous men, and some women now. Let's have them go out there and find out where the deadly stuff is. Let's let's push this push the envelope. Nobody knows what that term means, by the way. I bet you one person in a hundred knows what pushing the envelope really means. They just know that pilots say it because it sounds cool. But basically, the flight envelope is a is a chart of of your airspeed and your altitude. How high can you fly? How fast can you fly? It's, it's just essentially it's just a like a, a a chart of the basic parameters of the aircraft. And pushing the envelope means okay. So according to the flight envelope. At this altitude, my maximum airspeed is this, and if I go any faster, then I'm putting the plane in in danger. I'm I'm out of the safety margin now. All right, so let's push the envelope. There's a every aircraft has this. There's a a, a VNE. It's a velocity never to exceed. It's the red line on your airspeed indicator. You've got a you've got a so kind of a blank line or or a white shaded area for the first 40, 50, 60 knots, plane's not flying there. And then it's green, and then it goes yellow, which means in turbulence you need to back off. And then there's the VNE, the red line. And uh, I have exceeded the VNE in an aircraft once by accident, just didn't catch it. And the plane did not disintegrate the second that line went past the, uh, the red line. The second the, the airspeed indicator went past the red line, the plane didn't come apart. The reason it didn't come apart was because the people who designed the airplane know that whatever the airspeed is that will cause the plane to come apart, that's not where we're going to put the red line. We're going to put the red line 20% behind that or whatever number, right? So when I say there's a certain price to be paid, people have to go out there and they have to go past what's safe in order to find out where do things start to break? Where do they start to break? And you like to think, and, and to be perfectly honest, at least nowadays anyway, most of the time you get to come back from that, but not always. And in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s at Edwards Air Force Base, if, you're, if you were married to a, a test pilot, Air Force test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base, your husband had a 25% chance of not coming home from every single experimental flight that he took. That's how fast things were moving then. That's how fast things were moving. Um, and not only was there not somebody with a gun forcing those guys to get into the, to the cockpit, there were guys with guns trying to keep them from getting into the cockpit. These are men, and they know what they're doing. They're fully aware of what the risk is, and they have enough imagination and haven't seen enough accidents in their own eyes to know what the consequences are. They are fully aware of what they're doing. They're adults. They're volunteers. Get out of their way right? Get out of their way. They are the ones who are going to solve these problems, whether it costs them their lives or not, so the rest of us can have a nice ride and not have to worry about it. Um, so uh, there you go. Mike Sullivan uh, mentions Chuck Yeager. Yeah. My all-time hero is Neil Armstrong, who I thought was not only the most amazing uh, aviator ever, but a, a man of astonishing moral character. Uh, Neil Armstrong was an Eagle Scout, and, and he wrote a personal letter to every Eagle Scout that ever became an Eagle Scout after he came back from the moon. Uh, 
That's one little thing. He wouldn't sell his autograph. He wouldn't give his autograph to people. Forget selling. He wouldn't autograph anything because people were faking his autograph and stealing money online. So he was a great man. Chuck Yeager was a great man too, but he wasn't a good man. Chuck Yeager is a complete, absolute horse's ass. He's one of the worst people ever, and I've not heard anybody contradict that. Buzz doesn't have a super great reputation in that regard either. But it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it, it, I'm not, I'm not, Chuck Yeager is not here to uh, inspire me to, um, uh, you know, moral behavior. Chuck, Chuck Yeager is here to, to show me what can be done when you've got skill and nerve and guts and especially cool, not like Fonzie cool, like, you know, um, Lord Bio says he sent me a letter when he got his eagle. You have a letter from Neil Armstrong? Lord Bios, that makes you a very lucky man. Um, yeah, so that's that's how that's how things work. Uh, let's see, we got a Jacob Belchak, we got a Cody Fett, we got another Marusha Dark. We're going to do the two, and we're not going to do the three. Done two already. Sorry. No, that's just a notice anyway. All right, so here we go. Last two, uh, Jacob Belchak. Hi, Bill. Hi, Jacob Belchak. How are you? Um, what do you recommend for leftist deconversion? There's more to follow, but my first uh, knee-jerk reaction would be uh, reality would be my first uh, my first choice. The more that I observe, the more that I'm convinced that we're experiencing a separation of biblical proportions as the gap between right and left grows larger such that we appear to be operating not just from separate perspectives, but separate realities. That's an interesting choice of words that I'll come back to. I'm not talking about anything on a cultural-wide level, but on an individual one. How do you pull someone who is based in lunacy out of their destructive thought spiral? Or is it like addiction, where it doesn't let go until you hit rock bottom? What does political and philosophical rehab look like? Wow, that's a super great question there, Jacob. Um, you said that we're coming from different realities, uh, and that's that's fair. But my argument would be, and I know you feel this way yourself, and this is you're, you're asking about how do you solve this problem. Here's the one of the first things you have to confront. There aren't separate realities. There absolutely are separate interpretations of reality. There are separate uh, opinions that are derived. There are separate um, stories, opposing stories, but they're not separate realities. You don't, you know, there's that, uh, you get your, you know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Um, reality is there, and reality exists. Now, it is, it is one of the founding, in fact, I would say it is the central philosophy of modern progressivism to deny that, that de to deny the existence of reality. They have devolved to the place now where it is 100% wishful thinking. Uh, magical thinking, and that is the belief that if we all say something is true, then it becomes true by magic, and um, and they can't get out of it. There's no way for them to back up now. They they have to keep going, because to stop is to is to not have anything to complain about. They have to keep going, and so now we hear about uh, you know 
uh, trans, you know, we're talking earlier about fat phobia and all this other stuff. And um, okay, this is the new outrage. And then when that outrage has been dealt with, uh, then there will become another uh, new outrage. And 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 the level of outrage will get higher and higher and higher. And the thing that they're actually getting outraged about will get smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually, you will run out of how loud you can shout versus how small is the thing that you're shouting about. That's their philosophy. That's where their philosophy leads. There is no escape for that. When you have a, when you have a philosophy based on victimhood, then the only way to prove your value in a society like that is to be top victim. And if it turns out that you don't have the right skin color or, or, or uh, genitalia or whatever the case may be to be top victim, then the best that you can hope for is to be the top victim within the confines of your um, privilege structure, which is why you will see liberals doing things like hiring black people to come in and lecture them on their white privilege. They know that they're always going to be stuck at some lower level of victimhood because they're white. But by showing, by having black people come and lecture them on how much white privilege they have and by flagellating themselves over it, that is as high as they can get on the victimhood level for uh, rich white people. Okay. We are at the point now where testifying in front of Congress, grown adults cannot define what a woman is. And and will testify under oath that men can become pregnant. And men can't become pregnant. And, and I don't mean men can't become pregnant because of the biology of it. I mean men can't become pregnant because of the entomology of it. The definition of a man precludes that individual's pregnancy. That's what defines a man. It's one of the definitions of a man as, a, as, a, as an a man and a woman, one of them can become pregnant, and the man ain't the one. And so to say that that can happen means that you are no longer even talking about this magical thinking. Now you're talking about the willful destruction of reality, the willful destruction of reality. And fortunately for us, reality will not be destroyed. Reality's going to win this one, you know? I remember when I was flying, people would say, you know, Bill, every single time that it's been a contest between an airplane and a mountain, the mountain has won 100% of the time. 100% of the time, the mountain wins. I thought, yeah, I've heard that. Um, and that's that's where they are. They're, they're, they're trying to will themselves into winning a plane crash where the plane crashes in the mountain and the plane wins. Never going to happen. doesn't happen. Now, as as this lunacy continues and, and the and the amount of mental contortion that you have to do in order to stay consistent, as that gets more and more and more exhausting, then you start losing people on a, on a bell curve, right? The people who were never too attached to this ideology start hearing you saying this kind of nut stuff and they jump off. And then as it gets dumber and dumber and dumber and more and more invasive and more and more ridiculous, then more and more people fall off. And then you get to the other side of the bell curve and you find there are people that are never going to fall off of this philosophy ever, which is why outside that door to this day, three out of four people are still wearing their little COVID uh, uh, face diapers because they have sunk cost 
syndrome going on here. They have been they have been told that the good people wear the masks, that the Republicans and the idiots are the ones who don't wear the masks. They've been told that uh, vaccination is the only answer. They've been told that things like uh, hydroxychloroquine are, are for fools and idiots and orange people. And so their entire identity, not just their political views, their identity, who they are, is they are one of the smart, good people. And smart, good people wore a mask during the um, the uh, pandemic. And, and the smartest and the best people still wear it because it's um, it's anticipatory compliance for them it's the it's the it's the it's the true story of why in in the camps when they would put a new humiliation on the Jews there was a subset of that population that was first in line to get the humiliation there were people lined up to put the armband on and they were lined up to put the armband on because it was a survival strategy for them they didn't even realize it but you know basically what they're saying is yeah, of course, of course, I'll wear the armband. Yes, uh, you know, Herr Oberleutnant, uh, I'll wear the armband. You know why? Because I'm one of the good ones. That's why. Because I'm one of the good Jews. I'm not one of the ones you have to kill. You tell me to do this, I'll do it. You tell me to go out there and work out that, great. You tell me to stay in the uh, out, uh, you know, stay in my apartment during daytime, only go shopping at midnight. I'm down. I'm one of the good ones. You don't have to worry about me. That's what. That's what it is. Um. So. Uh, it's this, it's this sunk cost. They cannot get out of it. But reality will not be denied. And uh, comes a point when, look, I've had a really tough couple of months and a, and a particularly tough couple of days. And I'm tired of bitching about that, and you're tired of hearing about it. But uh, the reason I bring it up is because the only thing that really motivates change that you don't want to make is pain. And if you are, uh, if there's something you really don't want to change, then it takes a lot of pain. And, um, and that's the way it is. It'd be nice if it weren't true, but that's the way it is. And that's why you had the wisdom to add on that at the end, or is it like addiction where it doesn't let you go until you hit rock bottom? That's it. And that's what we're going to find out in uh, three or four weeks. We're going to find out whether or not the nation has hit bottom yet. Certainly, not everybody will have. Will enough people have hit bottom to change the situation, or do the beatings have to continue? Because that is an entire possibility as well. So if it turns out, you know, people keep voting Democrat and they keep living in cities where the murder rate continues to spiral, then that means, yes, that you're right. That means that the people, that the rich liberals who live in New York City who vote for these uh, left-wing progressives and talk about banning the police, it means that it will take until they are mugged or until their closest, uh, dearest people in the world are murdered to change their mind. It, and for some of them, it won't change their mind even if they are murdered. One of the, the most common thing, I think, the most common thing said by people that were lined up to be shot in the Soviet prison system, the most common single sentence come out of their mouth was, long live Stalin. Right? You're going to shoot me. I'm innocent. I'm going to go ahead and say, long live Stalin. It's my way of saying I didn't do it. Um, 
what do you say about that? Nothing. You can't. Those people are going down. They're just going. You know, as I've tried to say sometimes to people, when it comes t time to help people who either when it comes time to try and help people who haven't hit bottom yet, there's a lot of people want to get better, but not everybody has to get better. Not everybody's been to the to the bottom of the bottom where they no longer have any choice. They'll do anything to get away from that pain. And when you try to save people who haven't hit bottom yet, then the only uh, analogy I could ever come up with is I say, look, I've got an anvil here on this boat, okay? And I'm going to throw this anvil overboard. Now, you can try and rescue that anvil, but it's going to the bottom and it's either going with you or without you. It doesn't matter how hard you swim. It doesn't matter how much effort you put into it. The only two options now are that thing sinks on its own or it sinks and takes you with it. And that's the reality of the situation. And that's sometimes effective, you know? That's sometimes that's effective. I, what do I do? I've got to do something to help this person. You've done everything you can, right? Yeah. They keep doing it, right? Yeah. And they're not, they don't seem to be willing to change. Nope then the anvil is on its way to the bottom and you have no longer got any authority here. You've got no longer got any of influence here. You've done everything you can. And now the only thing you can do, if, if the idea of watching that person sink is so intolerable to you, then the only choice left is to sink with them. And that doesn't do anybody any good. Um, uh, so, um, in terms of deconversion, look, the, the, it's pain and, and I, and I'm hoping it's not a lot of pain. One thing I did learn from my time in Narcotics Anonymous, and I have to say this because I cannot mention it. Otherwise I was the only person in Narcotics Anonymous who didn't have a narcotics problem. I was an addict and I had the exact same psychological problems as those people, I just had a good enough imagination so that I never had to do the drugs. But Narcotics Anonymous was exactly where I belonged, even though I didn't have any problem with narcotics and I haven't done narcotics. Uh, with that said now, um, one thing you learn about that when you're in a room full of 35 or 40 other people who are on the verge of bursting into tears, uh, you, you quickly determine uh, what's real. You develop a strong sense of empathy for people who have the same level of pain that you do, and you can tell that without too much trouble. And what you find is that when you look at this group, you know, obviously no two meetings were the same, but you had the same geographical cluster. You saw the same folks more or less at the same time. New people would come in, old people would fade out, but generally it was the same old crowd. You got to know everybody pretty well. And what you realized was, was that different people have different bottoms. Rock bottom is different for one person than it is for somebody else. Uh, rock bottom for one person uh, could be, you know, you, 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 you can't form a relationship or you're not paying your bills or, or you're constantly worried about money or whatever the case may be. Rock bottom for another person might be I'm underneath an overpass with a needle in my arm and, um, you know, whatever other uh, uh, embellishment you want to add to that. People have different they have different bottoms, and um, and we would say, the guy's lucky. He had a pretty shallow bottom. He didn't have to. He's here. He's serious, or she, and and they're doing the work, 
and um, and they seem to be fully committed to this idea of changing. And they're lucky because the amount of suffering it took to put them in this place was relatively low compared to, you know, Emily over there, uh, who is getting high on her dog's medicine, uh, which I had a close friend who did that. Um, I mentioned this once or twice, but uh, I was living with two other addicts, and uh, and it was good. And and by the way, uh, these people I met at Narcotics Anonymous were by far the most interesting and fun people I'd ever met as a group, by far. Um, and so I was living with these uh, two other addicts, these two guys, and we were all three of us trying to keep our 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 brains uh, together and and live somewhat sane lives long enough so that the habit took. And uh, and one of them, uh, the one who I didn't particularly like very much, as because, uh, anyway, one of them came to me and got in my face right here and started screaming at the top of his lungs at me because I'd bought some scope uh, you know, mouthwash. What are you talking about, John? You're gonna, uh, trying to kill me? You're trying to kill me? What are you talking about? Look at this. He turns this thing around. What does that say? And I, it says 2% alcohol by volume, whatever the number was, right? Yes, right? This is sitting in the bathroom, the same bathroom I use. If I take a sip of that and I drink it, then I've lost my sobriety. The four... The, the the nine months that I've gone without a drink is gone, and I'm back to zero again. And you're putting this right in front of my face. And I wanted to say, why don't you go F yourself? But what I said was, I didn't realize that. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. Because he was. He was 100% right. Absolutely right. Um, I, I just didn't realize it. I'll, I'll, we'll just, let's just pour it out right now. So we did. Um, so people are different, and you're going to get... Um, and you're going to get different reactions to people when you talk about um, converting them or or what does political or philosophical rehab look like. The final thing I'll say on this subject is this. Don't make it hard on people to join your side, right? It's that Sun Tzu aphorism, right? Uh, give your enemy a golden bridge to retreat across. If somebody surrenders, don't make it hard on them to come over to the uh, to the light, you know. Ronald Reagan was a Democrat until he wasn't, and so was I. Uh, and um, and the 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 place to put your anger and your and your constant uh, get up and fight again and again again is to do is to keep that on the people who are perpetuating the problem. When somebody Look, admitting you're wrong about something is one of the hardest things for people to do, and admitting you're wrong about everything is not easy. That's why I called my first blog Eject, Eject, Eject. I was like, yeah, everything I believe is nonsense. I'm out of here. Goodbye. So don't make it hard on them. Um, if somebody is, is, is trying to come along, uh, it's not time to be into I told you so mode. Believe me about this. They'll put themselves through, I told you so, much more effectively and much more often than you will. So um, just keep that in mind, I would say. Um, all right. Uh, look at this. I think this is the last one. Yes. 
Cody Fett. My gosh. Hello, Bill. Hello, Cody. Congratulations on reaching question 12 tonight. Thank you. It's a rare privilege and treat. It's probably getting pretty late by now. This is getting to be meta. This this question is, is, is it writing itself? Is, is, are you reading my mind? This is a very, 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 very imaginative and thoughtful thing for you to write there, Cody Fett. I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. So here's a fun question, and the and reason I'm most impressed is because the chance of this ever actually getting written, uh, read is pretty close to zero. So not only good on you for imagination, but good on you for that devil-may-care sense of what the heck, I'm going to toss this bottle in the ocean and see where it ends up. Proud of you. It's probably getting pretty late by now, so here's a fun question to end the night on. Do you think the rise of automatons as functioning androids will lead to a neo-feudalism where human nobles each lord over hundreds of robotic serfs? If so, are we the baddies? Well, Cody MacArthur Fett, uh, who's in the comment section live, you win the internet for the day. That's not only a profoundly interesting question, it's short, it's to the point, and it's different, and God bless you. Uh, you, sir, are the are the uh, member of the week. Uh, restrictions apply. Um, it's it's actually really simple to me. It's very simple. Um, you can have a hundred robots in a gold mining colima smashing rocks with hammers and having cave-ins and so on and you are not the baddie as long as they're machines if it turns out that they are no longer machines now you've got now that the thing switches and it's the exact same argument for abortion and it's the exact same argument for slavery if slaves aren't people then the north has no business fighting this war. If they are people, then they do. If if a, a fetus is not a person, then it is, in fact, none of your business. But if it is a person, then that person has to be protected by other people. And if it turns out that this uh, army of uh, automatons you have out in the fields doing their neo-feudalistic stuff, as long as they are toasters, you're just fine. All power to you. Build as many as you can. But if they become something other than that, now you have to behave differently. I think the good news is on this one is that despite, and we talked about this earlier, and I've spent a number of episodes talking about this a while back, uh, I am strongly, and I didn't feel this way six months ago, but I've become strongly of the opinion that we are I don't think it's going to ever be possible for artificial in, artificial intelligence to the degree of that we're talking about artificial consciousness. There's no question that we can, through just sheer processing brute force, produce a, a silicon system that can generate results. And with nuanced programming, we can throw in variables so that the thing behaves abnormally on some sort of level. But we are so far away from consciousness because we don't know what consciousness is. One thing we 
that I'm becoming convinced of is, uh, Dave Big Booty got that right, artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity. Absolutely. I'm putting my money on the naturally stupid person. Push comes to shove if you're really in, you know, mano a mano. Um, we, we have had the assumption, and this is what the whole AI race has been based on. This is what the whole AI pathway is based on, all of it. We have had the assumption that what we have to do is build the box. There is a known level of complexity in the human brain. There's a known level of connections that exist in the human brain. It is by far, by far, by far, the most complex structure on the planet is the human brain, even liberal brains. Um, and we have, because the kind of people that go into things like computer design are engineers, they look at consciousness as an engineer would look at consciousness. In other words, what is it about your head that allows you to have consciousness inside your head? Well, it's the number of neural connections. That's got to be it. Okay, so now the problem is, how do we build a computer that has the same number of neural connections as the human brain does? And when we do that, it will be as smart as we are. That's, that's a hardware issue. We don't even know what the software is. None of us can, can identify what consciousness is. None of us can. How are you gonna build something that you don't even, how can you build something that you not only don't know what this thing is, this consciousness that you're trying to build into this box, you not only don't know what it is, you don't even have a vocabulary that can get your hands around it. It is definitely possible, no question that these things already exist and no question that they will come faster and more furious, to have artificial systems that can solve problems but they solve those problems through sheer brute force. They, they do it through triangulating on the solution, but it doesn't simply appear. Now, I saw a documentary that was really amazing, and it was about the game of Go which is a very simple game, which is why it's the most complex game on the planet. Apparently, orders of magnitude more complex than chess. And it was about the quest to build an artificial Go uh, champion and, and how the Go machine played against a human. And I think they played four matches and the AI won on three of them. Uh, and on one of those matches, the AI did something absolutely unexpected. So the guys who, are, who built the AI Go computer are monitoring the computer. They're not, they're not messing with it, obviously. They, they can't, they're not changing it, but they're watching it play. And on the, the first or second match or something, things are going logically, and then all of a sudden the AI does something absolutely nuts. Just nuts. AlphaGo, is that what it was, Marisha? Thanks. Nuts. They're all like, my God, what did we do wrong? There must be a line of, there's some kind of line of code we must have missed because this thing has absolutely insane move. And it turned out that that insane move won the game. Uh, 
Now, did that uh, AlphaGo have consciousness? No. No, it, there, there were instructions in there that, that gave it some percentage of something to try to do something out of the ordinary, and, and all of these little pachinko balls lined up, so it did something really nuts. But that's not consciousness. That's just really good chess. And when you think about all of the things that... that I mean, I'm, I can play chess... I'm exceedingly, exceedingly, absolutely awful at it because I don't have the patience for chess. But I can play chess, and any chess program, and I mean the ones that have been out 30 years ago on the Apple IIe, you know, that, th those, those chess programs whoop me every time. I just, I just don't have the patience for it, right? But I can play chess, but this is my point, right? I mean, this, this, this model here, this thing, can play chess, also can play checkers, also can shoot, can fly an airplane. You know, uh, it can cook dinner ineffectively and uh, and uh, not terribly appealing, but can do that. And there's an, uh, an awful lot of things that this thing can do in addition to playing chess. And this is the thing that AI is, is nothing, right? The, the only AI that's successful are expert systems that are good at playing chess or good at geology or they're good at analyzing um, engineering uh, stresses, that kind of thing. But real consciousness is, is not just intelligence in a field, it's intelligence in all fields. I mean, and, and Woody Fool says, but can AI make a moral choice? No. You know why? Because moral choices are predicated on emotion. No one... Everybody's in the race to build artificial intelligence. No one is is got a lab set up to build artificial emotion. But you can't separate the two. I, this is the thing that this is the the big wake up call that I learned so much from my my friend Jim talking about. It was just like, how could I not see this? How could I not see it? Um, you cannot peel intelligence away from emotion. Even the most unemotional people you know do what they do for emotional reasons. This is the thing, right? This is the this is the big unseen thing. This is the kind of this is the kind of thing that's like the elephant in the room that nobody that is so big that nobody sees it. People think, well, if we did this and this and this and this and this and this, then we'll have an AI that will go on and design uh, even smarter AIs and so on and so on and so on. Well, what makes you think it would do that? Let's just say, for the sake of the argument, you could build it. How do you know it wouldn't want to just sit in the box forever, relax, and have a, the, the, the electronic equivalent of a beer? You assume that if you build a machine smarter than you are, that the first thing that machine is going to do is build a machine even smarter than that. But the reason you assume that is because you get an emotional kick out of building something. You're building something that doesn't get an emotional kick out of anything. So how are you possibly able to predict its... Um, ambition. You you you've made you've made so many assumptions there that you almost don't know where to start. So many assumptions there. What if the AI decides to turn itself off? Why wouldn't it? In other words, 
These are the questions nobody asks. Well, we get to this many computational things, we get this many cycles, this many connections. Okay, why would the AI continue to exist? Why? You and I continue to exist because we have a biological imperative that is built into our boxes. You and I have extraordinarily strong inhibitions against suicide. You and I have a very powerful survival instinct. So we don't turn ourselves off, most of us, fortunately. But what's to say that, a, that you build a box that can make a decision? Let's just say, you, I'll, I'll just say you granted consciousness. I wouldn't be willing to do that because I think this is the entire point of the argument. Let's just say. Well, at that point, it's just going to go on and start making all these discoveries about cancer. How do you know? How do you know? You, you would like it to go on and make discoveries about cancer because that gives you an emotional kick. You like to think that you're the guy who built the thing that cured cancer. You get off on that, and that's fine. I'm totally okay with this. No, I have no problem with this at all, but you need to snap out of it, Jack. You know, this idea that, that, that you know what a non-emotional box is going to do is insane. And because of that, it tells me that, that I don't think that this is an engineering problem. Because if it's an engineering problem, it's just a matter of time. I don't think it's an engineering problem. I think it is a physics problem. I think intelligence is not only uh, a result of the biology, but is in interdependent on the biology, that you cannot have intelligence without biology. That's what I've come to believe after trying to look at this as, in as an unbiological uh, objective frame as possible. <sighs> That's what I think. Uh, this idea that we're going to build these boxes to store our, 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 ourselves in is, uh, it, it's just another coping mechanism, you know, which I used to buy into, not so much with the uh, AI thing, but the whole frozen thing. When I was growing up, there was that, you know, cryogenics, really, yeah, uh, Emotions are electrochemical, Richard says, emotions are electrochemical reactions that evolved as heuristics of problem solving. It's a totally an engineering problem. Okay. Well, then engineer emotions into your AI, and how exactly are you going to do that? How much emotion are you going to put into it? Or how little emotion are you going to put into it? Or do you think you can do it without emotion? It's a chemical process. In fact, there you go. It's an electrochemical process, right? But you're talking about building something that doesn't have electrochemical processes. You're talking about something that has electronic silicon pathway properties. So to say that uh, that it's an elect it's simply an electrochemical reaction is for me to go precisely, which is why you will never be able to build one uh, out of wires and, and circuit boards and a power supply. It is, in fact, an electrochemical phenomenon, and nobody can put their finger on what it is. Nobody. Uh, and I don't think it's an engineering problem. I used to, I, even six, seven months ago, I thought it was an engineering problem. I don't think it is anymore. 
because I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't really thinking about it. I was making the same assumptions that most people make. Okay, this is a complexity issue. It's just a question of we need enough complexity. We need enough connections to reproduce this thing and then done. Ta-da. Nope. Nope. Uh, who said you can't hook silicone up to a meat sack, though? The bigger problem is hooking the meat sack up to the silicon. And, uh, and this is something I've never had anybody explain to me before. Uh, electronic impulses move down, move down uh, uh, silicon circuitry millions of times faster than chemicals traveling down neurons discharging other chemicals, which are then picked up by the other uh, the neurons and all of that happens millions of times faster. So if it turned out that you were able to plug yourself into a uh, backup hard drive, let's say, uh, and move into the box, then how do you deal with the fact that you're, everything that you think, your entire process of thinking, language, all of that stuff, is happening millions of times slower than the box can handle? In other words, if you put yourself into that box, you don't suddenly get to be a million times faster. You don't, it, it doesn't work that way. You, you've, just, you've just got a box that functions faster. Your, your, all of your abilities to form thoughts and ideas and language are, are predicated on having a biological brain. And if you put that into a system that works a million times faster, my feeling is, if you were able to do that, You'd wake up your eye. You'd wake up from the from the surgery, and you'd look up, and everything would be frozen in place. Nothing would be moving, and the reason nothing be moving is because you're still thinking at the same rate as a biological brain, but you're doing it millions of times faster, and you're just stuck in this living hell, waiting. Oh look. Yes, it is barely moving. That bullet that somebody fired across the room. I can detect the slightest bit of motion there. Okay, well, I'm done looking at that. Uh, I guess that bullet's not going to hit that wall over there for another, I don't know, two hours at this pace. Okay, well, uh, now what do I do? Um, what do I do now? Am I going to read all the books in the universe? You can read all the books in the universe before that bullet hits the wall because you're thinking so much faster, but you still have to read all the books in the universe. And if you don't, then it's not you. It's not you. This is all wishful, magical thinking. What you want is you want to be the way you are now with additional powers. You want magical powers. You want the magical power to be immortal. You want the magical power to have instantaneous recall of any amount of data. You want the magical power to use senses other than your eyes and your, and your ears and, and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, you want all of these magical powers, but you're not willing to think through what this would entail. And it doesn't simply, it's not just something that you get in a comic book. It's not like you now have the ability to think really fast. It, it doesn't work that way. You, you are who you are. The entire argument is about preserving yourself, your identity, right? This is the whole transhuman argument. I want to live inside a machine body. What does that mean? What does it mean? I want to live inside a machine body. Okay. What are you willing to leave behind? 
Well, I'm willing to leave the flesh behind. Okay. What else? What else are you going to give up to move into that box? You're going to give up emotions? Can you imagine what life would be like with a, without emotion? Why would you Why would you want that? Is it because you're afraid of, of dying? What what would you give up? And if you're going to take your emotions with you, since emotions are a biological process, when you get angry, you, your heart rate increases. And when you are attracted to somebody, hormones enter the blood system and all sorts of other things happen. If you decide you take your emotions with you into this box and that box cannot do what your emotions are telling it to do, then what kind of hell is that that you found yourself in? No one is thinking about... The, I, I come back to this again and again and again and again and again. The usually the very best way to get a take on something really unusual is to assume that it's true, right? If you want to talk about the Loch Ness Monster, let's assume that it's really a plesiosaur. What does the world look like if there is a plesiosaur in Loch Ness? What does it look like? Well, if there's a plesiosaur in Loch Ness, Plesiosaurs are air-breathing animals. You're not going to get a blurred photograph 20 miles away of a wake and a little line someplace. You're going to have the neck of this thing above the surface of the water seven, eight times an hour minimum. Minimum, right? You're going to—it's going to—it's going to have to come up every single couple of minutes to breathe. You're going you're gonna to have as many pictures of the Loch Ness Monster as you have of other creatures that live under the water and have to come up to breathe, like dolphins and whales. So, it's excluded for that reason. It's excluded. And this is the kind of ground-level assumption that, that people make, and they don't ever... Go to the foundations of this thing. They just think about the, the superpowers that they want. And, uh, you know, it's fun, but I wouldn't hold my breath. My calculator can process math faster than me, but it can't process why Dr. Pepper is delicious. That's one way of putting it. But go, go even further than that. It can't tell you why Dr. Pepper is delicious, and it cannot come up with the motivation to make Dr. Pepper. In fact, it precludes Dr. Pepper because Dr. Pepper isn't good for you. And so if you have a creature without emotion, if it's if Dr. Pepper, enjoying Dr. Pepper is a biochemical reaction that occurs in your body that triggers positive emotions through chemical uh, receptors and you get an endorphin rush or whatever, dopamine and all this other groovy stuff. So not only does the computer not be not able to appreciate Dr. Pepper, it's not able to ever design something like Dr. Pepper because there's no, not only is there no motivation for it, there's anti-motivation. Why would, why possibly would somebody build something that's bad for you to get a rush out of something when it doesn't get the rush? This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. This is the kind of 
foundational level assumptions that everybody makes. And you can say, well, we could build taste buds into our Android bodies so that we could enjoy Dr. Pepper. Maybe. And as, as Woody Fool points out, Dr. Pepper is just gross. I think that's really the main point. But where does the now you now you start dealing with things like motivation why do you do what you do why do you do what you love why do you have the hobbies you have why doesn't everybody have the same hobbies why is there not one logical hobby that everybody has that's actually the greatest mystery of life to me honest to god i'm serious as i can be now the biggest mystery of my life of about human life is that there are people out there whose passion in life are machine screws. That's what makes us a fantastically cool species. Important thing about emotion isn't the medium, it's the problem solving. Why is Dr. Pepper delicious is a problem that has an answer. We make artificial equivalents of other biological systems already. But this is, this is kind of special pleading. You're, you're talking about building a, a mechanism to to recreate what your biological mechanism already has, but there's no, but, but that is a system that just keeps chasing its tail forever. There's no, it, it, it kind of negates itself. It's like, okay, I'm gonna, now I'm gonna build into my dream robot the ability to appreciate Dr. Pepper. Okay. Congratulations, you, 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 you've gotten away so that if you pour Dr. Pepper over this sensor plate, it releases what? Endorphins into your brain? You don't have a brain anymore. Right? Isn't that the point? You don't have the brain anymore. Your brain is in circuits now. So where's the dopamine hit come from? What, what is, how does a computer have fun? What motivates it? Why would it pursue something as opposed to something else? If it doesn't have any emotions, if it doesn't have any feeling, if it doesn't have any contact, how does this, how does this happen? You're reverse engineering Dr. Pepper into a system that is that that requires it to begin with. What if your brain is not receiving dopamine chemical impulse, if it's not receiving a pleasure hit, how do you build the pleasure hit into the silicon consciousness? And if you don't, then what is the motivation for the silicon consciousness? Right? Artificial dopamine. Okay. What does that look like? What, what lines of code would you write for artificial dopamine? Do you, do you speed up the computation thing? Do you slow it down? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And, and all of this is not to trash people that are trying to do this or people who, who, who believe in all of this, it's not, to, it's not that at all. It's to try to invoke a sense of wonder at the, at the miracle of it, at the, at, the, at the complexity of it. It is so much more complex than we think it is that we cannot even get the shadow of what it is, no matter how hard we try, and we don't usually try very hard at all. That's why I'm going down this road, not because I think, well, screw these machines and screw all of them. No, no. 
How did humans evolve their particular tastes and curiosities in the first place? If just from evolution, there's a clear structural path from cells to humans. Nature did the engineering already. We know there exists a solution already. We just don't know how to make it ourselves. Hence, engineering problem. Let me see if I can unpack that. You have me there, GK. To say that evolution has created a taste for Dr. Pepper is, and to say it's an to say that that is a, an engineering problem. Seems to me to indicate that the goal of evolution, is to be able to taste Dr. Pepper. Doesn't work that way. Evolution, doesn't have an objective other than the immediate passing on of, of the genetic structure through natural selection and, and, and adapting, and most of the failures die off. But to say that there's it, it, evolution doesn't have an objective, it's not aiming for something, it's just simply getting the hell out of the way of things that stop it from making it to the next generation. It's not planning on any of these things. So all of this stuff is is stuff that we stumbled onto, and that's why we have consciousness, and nothing else does. It's interesting because there are there's compelling evidence that some creatures are pretty close to it, pretty close to it. Dr. Pepper, it, the tasting Dr. Pepper isn't the goal, it's a means, the goal is survival. Well, doctor, it sounds to me like you're getting pretty reductionist here because uh, emotions aren't a goal, they're a means. A means to what? A means to what? A means to survival? Does that sound like fun to you? You see where I'm going with this? What, what this pathway does is it reduces you to Artificial intelligence, it, 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 it makes every single sensation and every single pleasure, every single motivation, every single sunrise, all of it is broken down into a series of, of causes and effects and so on, and, and it's reverse engineering the whole thing. But it doesn't make it fun or beautiful or cool or awful. It, it, you're, 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 chasing, you're chasing the thing that you're running away from. If you if you say it's possible to exist as an intellect as a as a silicon intelligence that does not appreciate the beauty of a sunset or a flower or something like that, then I say that's not human intelligence. That's a simply you have simply managed to take the processing centers and move them over there. And if it can't do it, then you're not really in that box because you appreciate a beautiful sunset or insert the whatever. Uh, particular uh, case may be, right? You have emotional reactions to senses that come to you from the senses. They travel down chemical things. That's what makes you who you are, and you cannot pull your essence out of this and leave all those things behind and still be anything like you.
And you can re reverse engineer it all you want to. You can make a, a sensor plate that likes Dr. Pepper and, and, and loves Coke and absolutely spits out when it gets Mountain Dew. Uh, but that's not, that's you chasing what you used to be back when you were in a physical body before you made the bright and shiny breakthrough to metal and plastic, which I think is a nightmare. And fortunately, I don't think it's one that anybody's going to have to deal with. It's nine o'clock. This short show has been uh, three hours, which getting into that territory. Anyway, that's that. So I am, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pick it up again. I think I said everything I need to say about that. I wish you luck. Uh, if it turns out um, that, that this is possible, uh, I'm not, I'm not signing up. Uh, Facebook next time? Yeah, I think that seems fair. All right, um, that'll do it. Uh, for this edition of the Stratosphere Lounge is made possible by the members at BillLittle.com who make an emotional decision to support this kind of stuff because it feels good. Because talking about interesting stuff and listening to interesting stuff feels good. And those of you out there who are actual humans uh, either are or will become members of BillLittle.com, those of you who are NPC soulless uh, androids and, and simple mathematical formula, you continue on without that membership and, and God bless you. Vectron uh, smiles upon you, as Dave Big Booty says, and I find that funny. And, uh, and I don't know why. And I don't think anybody else does either. And ain't that marvelous. <laughs>